What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I have Dave Mandel of Indecision Records. And uh, anyone that knows my catalog knows how important Dave uh, is and was to uh, lots of my bands getting released. So uh, he's a super important dude to me, and his history is long and awesome. This podcast is great. We uh, start off with him getting into hardcore and, and go through him doing a fanzine and then him doing a record label, and I pluck out like a bunch of uh, releases through his catalog, and we talk about them. So uh, this is pretty rad. I hope you enjoy it. Uh, please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever. Please also uh, give it a like and rate it and review it, uh, again, wherever you listen to the podcast. If you would like to go the extra mile, please go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and become a monthly Patreon. These are my personal heroes. They keep the podcast alive by plucking down a little bit of money, and uh, mostly they do it out of the goodness of their heart, but there is also some bonus content back there. Um, we go through the podcasts. There's there's just extra episodes. So uh, check that out, and uh, let's get on with the pod. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I have Dave Mandel of Indecision Records fame. How you doing, Dave? I'm doing good. Awesome. And uh, yeah, we're going we're going newer school. I could have tried to be the cool guy and said Indecision fanzine, but. Uh, I only know what I know. <laughs> so, but, uh, so yeah, it's, go, we, we've moved past that. <laughs> yeah. Anyone that listens to the pod weekly knows that we had Dave on for one of the questions episodes with, uh, Daniel. And we talked about your origin story a little bit there, but for the sake of being a completionist, um, can you say how you got into punk and hardcore? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like it's a pretty standard story amongst most people. Um, at least maybe people of, of my age group. Uh, I got into skateboarding first. Uh, punk rock was like kind of something that was secondary, kind of came along with skateboarding for me. And, and to be perfectly honest, it wasn't, I didn't have that, like, you know, come to Jesus moment where I was like, punk rock is my life. Like skateboarding was definitely my life. Um, and through that, just, you know, reading Thrasher magazine and seeing all these punk bands, like I'd listen to them because like, that's what skateboarders listen to. And, uh, at some point I couldn't really tell you when, uh, it just, it kind of flip flop for me. Not that I ever got over skateboarding, but, uh, punk rock became the primary and skateboarding, the secondary, uh, probably sometime in, you know, the late eighties or so is really when it kicked in for me. Um, and even though like I listened to to music there's a difference between like listening to punk rock bands and then kind of really absorbing yourself into the culture of punk rock and uh i feel like it took me maybe a little bit longer than than some people in that sense like skateboarding like i said that was the culture that i fell in love with first and punk rock was kind of like my secondary but that is not the case anymore <laughs> i'm all punk rock i love it hardcore i love it man 
Yeah, you know, we never we never knew that you were like a cuz you know everyone skateboards, right? But you never know like if someone's good or not. And I remember you came over to our house in uh South Oxnard in like 04 when we had the half pipe in our backyard. And like <laughs> you just went on it and totally shredded. We're like, "What the fuck? Dave Van Dust really good at skateboarding." <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> You know, yeah. Even at even at the Indecision Hotel, which was uh, we were in there from like ninety ninety seven, I think, to two thousand two, if I remember correctly, it was about five years. But we had we had a we had a skateboard ramp there too. Did you have a full half pipe? Yeah, it was a half pipe. I mean, it was a mini ramp. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like an eight foot or anything, you know. But it was probably like you know, it was like a five, four or five foot mini. Yeah, I think ours was only like four feet. Some four or five feet. Perfect. It's the perfect size, especially at, at at this point in my life. Like I'm, I'm not looking to do anything big. I feel like I don't recover the quite quite the same way from a fall. Yeah. Well, I only tried to drop in once and I ate my dick. So that, that was a wrap. <laughs> but you got to try. Shit. <laughs> you you got to just drop in and hope for magic. Like maybe I can do this. Nope. <laughs> but yeah. So what was the band that like connected you from from being like a observer and a listener of the music to like wanting to get more involved uh, as far as getting involved um like there's definitely like trigger bands uh that i had for me i mean the first time i heard minor threat i was you know that was kind of like a an advancement in level you know like this is this is what this is what i want to be a part of you know but as far as like actually being involved like in the scene which is what i think you're kind of angling towards it was it was really like bands like like Youth of Today. That was that was a big one for me, and uh, I mean I know that they're still around playing, and you know maybe in some sense have kind of maybe taken the shine off their name a little bit uh, in that sense because there's not really a, any mystery about them. But you know when when Break Down the Walls came out, that was that was a that was a game changer for me. That was I want to go to shows every single weekend for the rest of my life. Um, that was that was that was the band for me. But I mean that's that's not like the first band that I that I fell in love with. But I feel like that was maybe it's also just like the timing of how old I was at the time, you know, driver's license, things like that. Like all those things kind of uh, kind of rolling in a big ball together, kind of made that the moment where I really kind of immersed myself uh, culturally more than just like going to a show here and there. Like it was, I'm a part of this. Yeah. When was the first time that you got to see them? Uh, the first time I got to see them was after Break Down the Walls, obviously. Uh, man, probably when they still had Craig in the band. So that, I don't know if that was the Break Down the Walls tour, uh, or if it was later. But I, I had only seen them a couple times. Uh, that show, and then they played uh, a show that Ryan Hoffman put on in Pomona, uh, the following year, uh, at the yesteryears club uh that's the only two times i ever actually saw them as uh back in the day you know i mean i've seen them as a reformed band what was what was the club that you said was the first time you saw them fender's ballroom in long beach oh jesus so that's fucking epic yeah i mean i i only went there a handful of times um you know it was that was a that was a pretty long trek for me to to make it out there um and that was before i had a driver's license um, once I got my driver's license, it didn't, I mean, we, we went everywhere. We, we'd drive up to Gilman and, you know, drop of a hat. 
yeah, with with so much like riding on on uh, Youth of Today, like is them being the band that you really connected with. How how did that show deliver for you? Um, it was it was pretty surreal. Um, it was also kind of still in an era for me where I was trying to think of a, a good adjective here because it it wasn't fear or anything like that but shows were still felt scary you know so they were kind of overwhelming so i'm sure i remember the show maybe uh with a little bit more uh pizzazz than what it actually i mean you might ask the band they're like yeah it was kind of like a so-so show but for me it was it was i couldn't believe it you know it was it was so exciting yeah i can't imagine how good they would have been in their prime i mean i just i think the first time i saw ray perform live was uh when they were doing like no it would have been i think the second time because i saw better than a thousand the showcase before and then i think they came out on like that second rev tour and i just remember seeing him at the whiskey and it was like he was doing like a headstand on like one of the speakers like five seconds into their set i was like jesus christ this guy's an entertainer <laughs> you know like i can't imagine we would have been like in his prime oh he was he was one of the most exciting frontmen, and I and I, I mean I think he's still great. He's still great. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I saw him last year and and thoroughly loved it. You know, so yeah, but still, jelly of of you getting to see him in their prime. I wish. Uh, yeah, whatever. Anyway, so what? When do you start doing a fanzine? Uh, I had started doing a fanzine. Uh, with a buddy of mine, Ryan, that I went to high school with, he was kind of, he was like a, a real shepherd for me into the, those late eighties. Um, cause he was, he seemed to like know a lot more of the bands, uh, already. And, uh, like he was kind of like an encyclopedia for me. Uh, but he, he did the, actually, he actually did the first issue of indecision with me. We were doing a fanzine before that, that just didn't materialize. Uh, and then the first issue of indecision, I think we started in like early or the middle of 1990. I think I think it was early 1990, and then I think we got the zine out like either the end of that year or very beginning of 1991. Um, but it it was it was something like honestly I I did a fanzine because I, I had so many pen pals that I would, I would go through like the classifieds in Maximum Rock and Roll every month. And anyone who like posted something, like it didn't matter what it was, like I got T-shirts for trade or I have a fanzine I'm selling for a dollar. I would write everybody, you know. It, it was that was a that was a big part of uh, of the culture for me was like getting mail from all these like all over the world, you know. And uh, a fanzine was kind of a thing that helped me uh, be a contributor in 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 that community. Yeah, I would have barely caught the tail end of that because like I remember. Um, being young and like in the back of MRR, people would like have the little classified with like their record wants and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, super cool. Um, definitely. Oh, I, I, I mean, I, I was I, I was the kind of goober that would like I would write some of those people if I didn't even know the record. You know, I'm just like, tell me about this record, and people would write you back. You know, like what you've never heard the YDI seven inch. You know, like and then explain it to me. It's importance why I should want it. You know, like that's that's insane. Yeah, well, I mean, if you think of just how much time we waste, like on our phones now, like unnecessarily checking social media or playing Candy Crush or whatever the fuck, you know, it's like <laughs> that stuff is way more constructive and way more entertaining. 
Like, I would rather, you know, I mean, that's why I enjoy doing this podcast. I like to talk about hardcore music. You know, it's, it's no different than wanting to correspond with another like-minded person when you don't have that many people to talk to about it. You know, and even on this platform where there are a fair amount of people, it's like, it's still super niche, you know, like this, this genre of music. Yeah. So how many issues do you do of Indecision? I did five full issues. And then I think, I think there was either two or three, like half issues that were, you know, basically like a, uh, an 11 by 17 sheet of paper, like folded up, you know, like one little, like, I mean, a, a glorified flyer, um, which I had actually gotten the idea from Fred Hammer of, cause he had done, uh, a, a little newsletter called like, uh, Bethink, I think it was called. Does it, does okay. that ring any bell with you? But he no. did like a little, like a, like a little newsletter that wasn't like a, it's alive. I'm not really sure why, um, I might be remembering that incorrectly, but well, for much, some reason I, I feel I remember that. And I, so like indecision, like in between, I don't know, like issue two and three or three and four or something like that. Like I would do like a little half scene. Cause I mean, they didn't come out very often. I mean, it was basically like a year end yearbook, you know, I'd do them like once a year. Sure. Yeah. Uh, much later in the, in the mid nineties, he did like a little newsletter called localism that was like, if I remember right, it would be like an eleven by seventeen, maybe just folded. So it would be like mm-hmm. a four. So it'd be a four pager. Um, but yeah, I don't. I don't really remember that well. But uh, so in in ninety two, you decide to make the jump and actually put a record out. Um, what what was like the impetus of that? Was it just like you were bros with the band and it was like the right time, or had you been wanting to do a record for a while and and now you find the right you project know- or? I don't. I don't think I really put out a record because I wanted to do a record label. I kind of feel like I wanted to do a record label after I had done a record. Uh, is when I really realized that how much I enjoyed it. But uh, as far as like the the first record, the the path to that's existence was that uh, Strife had recorded a seven inch for New Age. And this was like at a time where Mike was super busy. I mean, I want to say it like all like within like a month of each other, two months of each other, like Strife had recorded an EP, Mean Season had recorded an EP, Unbroken recorded an EP, Outspoken recorded the LP, uh, and various other things that he had kind of going in the works. And uh, their record was either going to get like pushed back for a while. And I mean, they had been playing on a demo for, a while they really wanted to have a record out and Mike kind of told them that like it might not be come out as quickly as, as you're hoping it's going to. And then I know at some point there was talk about it possibly even being a cassette single. That was like a, a popular thing. Like at the time, like outspoken had done one um, conversion had done ones with like stone telling and uh, the integrity had like a cassette single. So it was like kind of like, in the scene, people were doing these cassette singles. And, and I think there was some like, disappointment even in the idea of, with the band, of Strife being a cassette single. It ended up not turning out that way, so it didn't really matter. But uh, Sid Neeson, their drummer, uh, asked me, he said, hey, would you be into helping me put out our own 7-inch? And I was like, yeah, of course, I'd love to do it. So we quickly went into the studio uh, and recorded uh, at the same studio that 
the Outspoken LP, the Mean Season 7-inch, the Unbroken were all recorded at, uh, which was a terrible studio looking back. Um, legendarily terrible recordings. But uh, it was cheap, and it was quick, and we could get it done. And then at some point throughout the process, Sid kind of went to me, and he's like, you know, it feels like you kind of want to take the reins on this and kind of do it on your own. I was like, I kind of do. Uh, I don't want that to bum you out. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to run a record label. You know, I, I, I want you to do it. So he kind of like pushed me into that direction. You know, he kind of gave me the project to do, helped me get it started and then kind of, you know, be on your own, go do this. And then after that, I was hooked. I was like, I love this. It's, I mean, even with the fanzine, it was always something I did. Cause I just, I want to be involved. I'm not, I'm not really musically talented. And I have I have no problem being, you know, somebody in in the back helping things get done. And record label offered me that opportunity. Yeah, can you can you compare the satisfaction of of like finishing a zine and having it out compared to like uh, having some of those early seven inches finished and coming out? Um, I don't know if I would say like one feels better than the other. Um. But that first time you actually get that record in your hands is is pretty special. With like a fanzine, you know, you're doing layouts, you know, while you're making this. So you already have like an, a, a visual of this is what it looks like, you know. With a record, that's not the case. You know, you're turning in artwork. And at that time, I was doing paste up artwork and then we'd like shoot it with a camera to make the film. We were pre like computer layouts for it. Um, so there was a little bit of that mystery, but, uh, or not mystery, I should say, but to, to get that record the first time, I mean, even today, like, you know, I mean, I'm what, almost 30 years into indecision. And whenever I get that record, I'm so excited to like rip that shrink wrap off and look at it. Um, yeah, it's exciting still like that, 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 that buzz hasn't gone away. And there's a real, real sense of, of, of accomplishment with it because, it's a lot of little things that have to happen uh, for that thing to come out. Yeah, and there's also like the, it's like a, it's a staggered satisfaction and excitement too, because like that excitement of getting the test presses is really cool too. And also the nervousness oh. of playing it the first time. Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah, there's definitely like a sense of accomplishment only because, yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's a step-by-step journey. So by the time you get to the end and it's holding your hand and that journey's over, there's definitely like a huge sense of relief and accomplishment. Yeah, I, I love it. And, and I, I like how you said it. Like, it just never gets old. It never does. I it mean, never it does. It for me it, either. You know, I mean, I, I know, you know, that's maybe not the experience that, you know, everyone that's done a record label has had, you know, but... As far as I'm concerned, if that's not your experience at the end of that little journey for each record, then you're doing the wrong thing. You got to go do something else. Yeah, for sure. Um, what is the story behind the the Mandel can suck it cover? <laughs> um, so, like you said, like you know, things things got put together staggered. So we got the recording done, and we knew that all we need, we needed to get labels done uh, so that we could turn it into the pressing plant. And then we'd get covers made and we'll put it all together. So things got done in very uh, long steps. So the record was done. It was turned in. We had test presses. It was approved. And it went to the plant. And, you know, the pressing times 
weren't quick, but better than the turnaround than vinyl's been in the last, you know, five years or so. And uh, we got records and kind of realized like, oh, we've, we haven't finished a, a layout for the cover. Um, I had done a back cover, but we still hadn't had a front cover. We were going to talk. We weren't sure what we wanted to put on it. And uh, Andrew suggested, he's like, well, we want something we could, you know, sell at shows. So I said, okay, well, there's 200 on green. We'll just make a different cover for the green one. And, you know, we're not sure, really sure. Let's just find a photo and we'll just pay it, put it in Zarek's copy. Of him. And Andrew's like, okay, we should call it Mandel can suck it. And I was like, kind of like laughed at the idea. So, I mean, it, it wasn't, I mean, it's a little bit of a jab at me for not getting that cover done in time, but, uh, you know, it was all done in good faith. It, it might've been Sid that came up with that idea, but for some reason I feel like it was Andrew, but yeah, it was, it was a, it was a playful jab. I mean, I sold them, you know, like I mail ordered those things. So it's not something that was, uh, bothering me. Yeah. And, and for, for the people listening, it's obviously a playoff off the judge. The chunking can suck it. Yeah. And, and, and right around that time, um, Jamie Billig, uh, old Santa Barbara scenester, uh, had put out a 10 inch bootleg of Chung King can suck it called revelation can suck it. So like, and then, uh, unit pride, there was like a, there was like a alternate cover of them that said Jason Bush could suck it. So like, it was kind of like a, it was kind of like, I don't know, a meme before memes existed. Yeah. Inside hardcore joke. Um, so before we jump kind of into the catalog here, um, I'd like you to kind of go into like, okay, so Strife wanted a seven inch out so bad. Can you kind of explain mm-hmm. like how big of a deal it was for a band to get a record out? Because like, I remember even doing my, like my first record, the voice of Defiance seven inch, like how big of a deal, like it felt to be on final. Like it, it, it was like a, cause it's a harder barrier of entry. Like back then, it was it was kind of it was a little harder to put a seven inch out, I think, because uh, you know now you can go to one place and they can take care of everything for you. I remember how daunting it was, like doing the first seven inch. Like, okay, I, like you, you got to record it somewhere. They put it on this like format that you've never seen before that you can't listen to. You got to turn that in somewhere. You got to get a different guy to master it for vinyl. You got to get labels somewhere else. You got to get your covers somewhere else. Like all these things and hope that they all tie together and get sent to the plant. So it was like kind of a, a wild process, but it was a big deal to get put on the vinyl. Don't you think that's why Strife wanted it so bad compared to like a tape? Oh, f- oh for sure. And, and, and maybe it's not the case now. Cause now it feels like, <clears throat> you know, vinyl might just be like, Oh, that's a product, something for us to sell on, on Bandcamp, you know, but what we really want to do is get our stuff onto streaming platforms or whatever it might be in like, you know, a modern nomenclature, but, uh, having a record, you know, even then, you know, in you know, the early 90s, felt like a big accomplishment that not every band could do. So it was kind of like a little bit of a separator. Every band could do a demo tape, you know? That's, that's there's, there's no barrier of entry there. But to actually have like a record that you or someone else actually has to spend a bunch of money to get done, that's, that's a much bigger deal, you know? And, and, you know, they love records too. And to be able to have a record that's you on there playing, you know, that's, it seemed insane back then, back then. I mean, you know, for us at that age, you know, people were making records forever, but for us at, you know, you know, the, the end of our teens, like that was still like a, 
a huge wow moment to be able to be on a record. Cause that's something that they could take to their parents going, look, look, I'm, we're in a band that we did a record. Yeah. You could show your grandma, you know, yeah. it's like, it's impressive. Cause it's like, that's how, that's how music was taken at the time. I mean, by then there's CDs and there's tapes, but like you said, like, it's just, I don't know. It was a little, there's a lot more goes into putting out a record or a CD. The CD's big too at the time. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, super, super cool. Um, I wanted to talk about the Blackout 7-inch because that must have been pretty rad for you to do because, like, you're a big Blast fan. Um, how did that come about? Did you reach out to them or, or no, what was going actually, on with them at the time? <clears throat> um, they had done a couple of Blast demos uh, without Cliff. And I was living in New Jersey at the time, and I was talking on the phone with Fred Hammer. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and we were talking about like, what's Blast doing? You know, I mean, that, that's like a, that's a worship band for me. They, they could literally record feedback and I would have put it out. You know, there was not much in the way of like real expectations. I was just excited to, 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 to be a part of anything with those guys. And Fred said that, yeah, Mike has a band. I mean, it's that same Blast band, but they changed the name to Blackout and they, they looking for someone to help them do a seven inch. And so really Fred was the middleman that kind of brought that to me. And I was just like, yeah, I'm in, I'm I'm absolutely in. And I, I had been planning on moving back to California anyways. Um, but that was honestly something that kind of lit the fire under me. Like, yeah, I I, I need to be back in California. I need to, you know, this like East coast vacation is, is done for me. It's time for me to get back home and, and start working on stuff. But it, it was, it was pretty exciting. And it was really exciting too. Um, after the record came out, uh, they played a show in, uh, it's the little town just outside of Palm Springs. Can't remember what it's called. Um, but for some reason they got like a show there and they said, Hey, we're going to drive down from Santa Cruz for this show. We're going to stop in Huntington beach, pick you up uh, and take you to the show. And like, even just like riding in the van, you know, like, Oh my God, I'm like with the guys from blast, you know, like, and they're seriously some of the most awesome dudes. And like, we, we were driving along and we saw like a, a skate ramp on the side of the road. They're like, Oh, we should have brought our boards. And I kind of like looked at them like, we should, we should have, why didn't we bring our boards? I was like, <laughs> so, so freaking excited. You know, it was, it was so awesome. Um, yeah. but yeah, that band was just untouchable for me. And, and I feel like they're a band like mostly for people. I think that didn't have like a local connection to them. Um, when people like try to write them off, it's like, oh, they were doing the Black Flag thing, but like, no, f- screw that. They they were doing Black Flag better than Black Flag could do Black Flag. I, I they were untouchable, untouchable. But yeah. it was it was pretty exciting for me because even that that's that record was probably like two years almost after the Strife Seven Inch. It wasn't like back to back, so I'd kind of put out that Strife record, and it was kind of like, okay, I did it. You know, like the idea of running a record label wasn't even like an idea yet. It wasn't until like uh, the blackout thing happened that I went like, oh, this is now a series. This is now, this is a catalog. It's only two records, but, you know, it's not just like helping to put out my friend's band. Yeah, yeah. And that gives you a certain amount of confidence because there's a certain level of, of acting professional you have to do when it's not your friend's band. You know, like a mm-hmm. little more pressure. So, but um, yeah, I love that seven inch. I think it's rad. 
And that's funny that you bring up them playing like a town out of Palm Springs because they always ended up kind of playing random spots. I remember when they were doing the the band Lab. That's like the only time I ever went to a show in uh, Santa Clemente. San Clemente. That was the same. Lab was Lab was the same band. It was Blackout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They changed the name again. Now, so it was Lab Mm. Life After Blackout or Life After Blast. I think it was Life After Blast, but but yeah, it was it was basically Blackout's. I I think there might have been another band called Blackout, and they just okay. didn't want to deal with it. If I might be remembering that incorrectly, but I, I feel like that was the way it played out. Yeah, both those seven inches are sick. I love them. Um, so you do the collateral damage seven inch, and this is I love collateral damage. I think that they're one of the most underrated bands, at least California in the nineties. You do this the first seven inch. Does New Age does the second one, or is that vice versa? Yes, New Age did the second one. And there, okay. There's definitely a, a story there, but yeah, I did the. That was right after I moved to Orange County, and uh, I was I hung out with Chris Loman a lot uh, when I first moved out there, and he he basically brought the project to me. He's like, "Hey, I'm doing a a band where I'm gonna sing, and uh, I want you to put it out." I was like, "Okay, let's do it." I mean, he didn't really, he was the band, you know, he basically just got friends to be like, okay, you're going to be the guitar player. You're going to be the bass player. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, uh, Pape from Farside was playing drums, you know, like it's, it's, it's an odd mix. Like when you think of what collateral damage ended up being later, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They're super cool. I mean, their best song is, is the next thing I want to talk about, which is the, the comp you put together. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's the best song on the comp the Redemption 87 song is very close. But the just you told me to hold so good, you know, just the way yeah. it comes in. How was the idea for doing a comp, um, and how daunting was it putting it together? Um, it actually changed forms a couple times. The idea for doing the comp was I, I don't think I was ready at that point to like commit to like doing or not even commit taking the responsibility. Uh, for doing a band's full-length release. That seemed like such a, a huge jump from from doing the seven inches that I was doing. Um, so I, I thought a comp would be a great way to kind of ease my way in as my first 12-inch release. And uh, originally, it was just going to be a comp. I talked to a few bands uh, that said no, uh, and a few bands that were uh, uh, down to do it. Um, and then kind of as I started kind of looking for, oh, you know, like I'd say, oh, you're doing a comp. Hey, do you have space for us? It ended up being so many local bands that it's like the three or four out-of-state bands, I don't know, kind of almost felt out of place at that point. And uh, that's kind of when I switched it to being like a California comp. Um, and and there was a lot of stuff going on at the time. So I thought it was like a, a good... A good uh, moment in time for me to do that it's a good snapshot of what the scene locally at least looked like uh in 1995 um but there was there was no like special uh intention behind it besides me really wanting to do an lp record but not having the what i thought was going to be a huge responsibility of handling someone's full length yeah, it is such an interesting snapshot, and what a strange time. I mean, like, the, the sounds are just all over the place. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, 
It's 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 interesting because I've I've listened to like some of the the pods that uh, like you and and Daniel and Stu and uh, episode one will do uh, about like early '90s stuff, and you you guys will talk about it in like a reverence where like oh there was so much good music coming out at this time, and like that 1990 91 92 like I actually felt the opposite at the time like it you know the late '80s had just kind of died off which were like so many of the bands that I loved or they got really embarrassing that you didn't want to like them anymore. And there kind of was nothing to like take its place. So you kind of had all these people from hardcore bands not wanting to do the, the kind of, you know, by the numbers hardcore. So they kind of tried to branch out. Some of them were complete and total failures. Um, some of them I think were a little magical. Um, but I mean, the, the, it's not like the scene was at like at an all time high at that time. Um, I didn't really listen to a lot of mainstream stuff. So I, you know, like a lot of like the, like the, the big radio bands, I, I really knew nothing about it. I, I was tuned out. I only listened to hardcore. Um, but I, I kind of feel like it's, a, it's an interesting area cause I feel like it was a rebirth area. The only people that were really still around in those early nineties are people that really wanted to be involved in hardcore. You know, anyone that was there cause it was like the thing you do with other, my, my other high school friends, like they were all gone. You know, so it kind of felt like, you know, all, all the real people were there still. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, because you, you grab a lot of like the weird stuff, but then you still have Ignite, Redemption 7, Collateral Damage. And uh, the song that stood out to me, and I remember hating this band, um, mm-hmm. was the, par- the Parades In song. I, I mm-hmm. just listened to this comp again, and I fucking love that song. And I remember seeing <laughs> them and just hating it. And maybe it was because, you know, I'm just closed-minded, like... Oh, it's a band like the guitarist sings, and they're playing kind of hardcore music, and you know, kind of in like no. That pic- uh, per I think the the parades end that was on the comp uh, was not because when when it was the guitar player singer that was actually Jay Hansel uh, oh, later on different, different type uh, of band yeah yeah the the lineup for that comp that was the only time that that they were, it was basically that band uh, most of the guys from that band remain. Um, okay. that, uh, Igby had put out, um, with, with someone else singing, uh, and they recorded two songs. Cause there's one other song that, um, they never put out and I didn't use it for the comp, but there was two songs in that session. Um, but that's the only time that lineup, uh, was a band. So it's like, it kind of, kind of funny. Cause like they did seven inches and stuff like that later, but it was essentially a completely different band. Yeah. I just remember they were like a band that would play the pickle patch and I was like, ugh. Like <laughs> they were, they like, were definitely pickle patchers. <laughs> yeah, but the the song of your comp rules, and then I was like, I was totally eating crow listening to it like last week. Like, <laughs> fuck, this is good. Like, I was a dick. So thanks for making me feel a little better. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, uh, one of the next things you do that is pretty important to the history of Indecision Records is you do the Instant Seven Inch in 1996, and. Mm-hmm. Looking at these things in the timeline, I'm always shocked because, like, you know, your memory is not is it's never perfect, you know. And you look back at oh, stuff mine's and, terrible. Yeah, and and like the timeline of things is is weird. Like, you know, the the Life's Halt seven inch came out in '98, and and I always picture them in like the the group of like the the year 2000 bands, and it's like, whoa, they predate it by like two years, and two years, like, you know, in the the scheme of a lifetime, isn't shit, but. It feels like hardcore, at least in like the '90s, 
it feels like every year is like almost a lifetime from the next one. And looking at like this, yeah. looking at this instant seven inch for ninety six, um, it's really early, and and I'm thinking that maybe they don't get the credit they deserve for playing like an old style of hardcore, like kind of in the dark time for that, like you know, like it, it would get popular like the next year or the or ninety ninety seven ninety eight. But this is a seven inch ninety six, and they're playing like a very straightforward uh, style of hardcore. Um, yeah. How did how did you meet these guys, and how do you feel about the seven inch? Um, I actually met Ensign's like a band that I kind of consider in in two parts, at least that original lineup that's on that first seven inch. I had met the guys in Ensign. Uh, I was visiting someone on the East Coast, and the drummer had a house, 67 Handy Street, where they used to do shows like in the basement. And we went to go see a show there. And I ended up hanging out with uh, all those guys several times over that week that I was out there. And they gave me an Ensign demo, uh, you know, maybe the day before I I went home. And I listened to it and it was, it was, it was cool. I dug it. It was, it was really different. Um, It did not have Tim Shaw singing. It was a, a different singer. Um, but I was, you know, it was kind of already on my radar. Like, you know, they're really good people, and they're it's kind of an interesting band. I, I, I like that demo. It doesn't sound like what Ensign uh, ended up becoming, um, but it but it was definitely something I took notice of. And then, uh, maybe the year prior to that, I had gone out selling merch with Strife on a Sick of It All tour on the Scratch the Surface tour, and Tim Shaw was Sick of It All's roadie. And, you know, you know, you go on a tour with somebody for a month or a month and a half or however long that tour was, you know, you kind of become friends. We kept in touch a lot uh, after the tour was over. And he calls me out of the blue one day and says, hey, man, I got a band I'm doing. And I was like, oh, yeah, tell me about it. He's like, it's called Ensign. I was like, wait, I, I saw an Ensign in New Jersey. And he's like, oh, no, I'm singing for that band. I was like, oh, that's crazy. So, like, it basically had this 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 mishmash of two different groups of people that I had met separately, uh, kind of came together in this band. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm interested. Let's do, let's do it. You know? Um, but that's kind of how the band came to me. It wasn't like I, uh, like saw them with Tim and was like, Hey, let's do it. Like I actually knew Tim completely separate from those guys. And it was actually kind of surprising. I was like, how does Tim even know these people? Like they seem like very different social circles, you know, like, you know, Tim was hanging out with like, you know, the alleyway crew guys. And, you know, these guys were, you know, hanging out in basements watching garden variety play. Maybe that's why they were interesting. Maybe that's why they were yeah. like, they ended up being a, a cool mishmash of dudes. So. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. And then, you know, obviously, uh, if, if you can follow like, you know, from release to release, it was like an ever changing lineup, especially in those early years until they kind of got like the, the the combination that really worked for them yeah and and so going through your catalog here dave um i'm generally picking out like the first release of bands so if you have anything else to say on Insin, you should say it before i move on okay um but yeah they they did a they did a full length which was like a great um indecision release came out i don't have it in front of me but probably a couple years after the seven inch because they do two seven inches and they do an lp if i remember correctly uh it, it came out it came out the following year. It came out in '97. Okay. Um, the se- the second seven inch they did uh, was actually because 
um, because of like, you know, Tim's connection to sick of it all. And a lot of those like New York bands, uh, there was a label in Japan that really wanted to put out a Japanese version of the ensign EP, but they didn't want to do an EP. Like they just, it's not worth it for them to license. They wanted to have like a full length worth of songs, like a CD only. Um, so we kind of, after talking to them, like, all right, they need like four more songs. So they basically went and recorded four songs to be the bonus tracks on this Japanese CD so that it could come out. And since we had already recorded it, we were just kind of like, ah, oh, let's just put it out as a seven inch here. Like it was never in like an intended seven inch. It's just kind of by function, it ended up existing. I mean, we were, we were already like looking towards uh, a full length by then. But that full length was a big deal for me too. That was the first like kind of what I would consider a higher budget record that I had done. Yeah, and what was the feeling going into that? Did you feel a lot of pressure? A little bit, because, I mean, Ensign was working hard. Like, they were touring a lot uh, and, I mean, losing a lot of money, too, uh, for both of us. But uh, going into that full length, it was kind of like, this is this going to be my first, not real record, that's, that's not the right word to say, but kind of like my first big release, you know? I mean, they were recording at Tracks East, which was like kind of like the hot studio at the time. Um, it was more, ex- the recording was more expensive than anything I had done it to that point. I mean, by probably like 10 times, you know, and, you know, we got it mastered at this place. And, you know, it, it, it was, it felt like we did the things that like a victory records would have done at that time, you know, mm-hmm. and it maybe something that was like, there was a, a little, uh, intrepidation on my part in the sense that it's just like a, a, a bigger thing that I'm equipped to handle. Um, but it ended up not being the case. Is, is you stepping from like kind of doing like a hobby label to like possibly doing a real contender record label? Yeah. I mean that record also, you know, it's, it's not just like when you put out a seven inch, it just kind of feels like a, we got this seven inch out. Here you go. Let's do this with like a full length like that. There was a lot of other moving parts that we were trying to get into place. We had advertising budgets and all the ads had to get done on a certain timeline so that they're in time for the release date. Uh, we got to get all the tour stuff scheduled and, and, and set up and, you know, trying to get a band that doesn't actually have their full length out yet on a, on a decent tour is not easy. You know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta hear, no 30 times before you hear that one yes and it's it's it, it can be it can be daunting uh, yeah, and then you got to get the record out in time before the tour yeah exactly and and hope that you can get it into stores you know that's yeah. distribution distribution is difficult that's that that used to be the thing that sunk everybody you know i, I don't think that's necessarily the case for for labels now like distribution's almost kind of like the the extra credit, like if if you get a good web presence and get streaming and all in line and all that kind of stuff, you you can do stuff a little bit more on the cheap, you know. But that that record was a a huge huge investment for me, you know. It's it's not just like oh I made enough money that came in off the collateral damage seven inch that I can <laughs> afford this ensign recording, you know. That was that was my savings. That was that was like everything that I had earned you know, working my job for the, like the last five years before that, you know, it was, 
it, it was it was scary. You, it was it was a commitment. It, it was drawing a line in the sand, saying I'm either doing this or I'm not. Right. And in the end, did it recoup? It did. It did. Um, the band didn't recoup. They they spent uh, an insane amount of money uh, on, on their short tenure on Indecision. But the record itself, yeah, the record itself recouped. Yeah, that's cool. Did you feel weird when they when they left the label? Like, was was that a thing or no? Um, it was pretty heartbreaking. You know, that it felt like a breakup. I mean, I I, I know that some people can. I, when I when you hear people say things like "ah, oh, it's not show friendship, it's show business" or something like that, uh, it's just like the most cat like just gross things. I I can't I can't picture. And I, I can't put music in the, hardcore music in in, a, in in terms like that. Like this, I, I put out records by bands that uh, I like, and people that I like, and people that I would want to hang out with, and people that I want to support. So to have a band like Ensign leave the way they did was pretty heartbreaking. You know, um, we ended up. You know, the, the friendships were probably better for it in the long run, um, but it was. It was it was a shock to my system a little bit. I, I mean, I, I I tried to talk them out of it. I didn't think, and not being selfish, like oh, I want you to stand in decision, but like I don't think this is the right move for your band. Uh, and and it, I didn't think it was. I, I think that I, I that was proved correct. You know, I think a lot of the hard community core community uh, turned on them a little bit. Yeah. What what was the the benefit that they saw of going to Nitro? Would it just be a like there's more of a budget. Um, well, and also they got to kind of restart their band debt. Um, <clears throat> they were really my only band when they were on Indecision, my only full time band. So, like every penny I made went towards Ensign stuff, and a full time touring band is 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 expensive for for everyone involved. And okay, we got to we got to need a tour van. I, I you know bought them a tour van. Uh, the the van's tires are bald. We need to buy new tires. I, I bought them new tires. Like, hey, we need a bunch of merch for this tour. Okay, I'll get all the merch done. Uh, and then, you know, you, you hope that maybe you'll get paid back something at the end of the tour. But they're going out as like a support. Even though they're getting good tours, they're going out as a support. You know, they're getting paid 100 bucks a show. And then whatever merch they can sell, they're they're not making enough money to to pay off the bills for all the things that we had to pay for going into it. So with every tour, even though it was better for them and maybe it would make them a little, they would get their name out a little bit more. It, it was just deeper and deeper into debt and it, it wasn't coming back the other way. It didn't matter how many records the record, the album sold because it wasn't going to bring in enough money to, to counterbalance how much actual band debt they were building up. And, Really, the thing—I mean, I mean, there's a couple different things. Uh, probably it depends on who you ask in the band, <clears throat> but the way it really played out was the band was offered a full European tour with Sick of It All, which at the time that's a huge tour. But the catch was Sick of It All was going to require them to share the tour bus. So on those MAD tours, we could go get our own van, pay for a driver. Uh, and it's, you know, even on like support money, like it's, it's doable, but they were gonna get support money. Plus we were gonna have to pay for half the tour bus up front. So before they even, 
we bought plane tickets to even get them to Europe. We were going to have to cut a check for the, the tour bus, which was, you know, probably twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000, which I didn't have. Like, I didn't have that kind of money. I, I couldn't empty out any more bank accounts. They just, it wasn't there. Like, I, I wasn't going to be able to come up with it. So there was right. a conversation we had about that where they, you know, you know, I mean, you know how it is. Like when you get that carrot dangle in front of your face, you feel like this might be the only opportunity. This is the only time they're ever going to ask us to go to Europe. We have to do this now. Where I was kind of like, well, let's think of something else for this first European tour and then see if Sick of All will take you next year, you know? Sure. And they they felt like that they were kind of under the gun. Like it's it's now or never. And I was like, man, well, it's, it's going to have to be never. Like, I don't know how I can do this. And, uh, they had ended up talking to someone at Nitro, not even about getting picked up or anything like that. They were just friends with them, you know, cause you know, they had done tours with AFI and that sort of stuff. And uh, a bunch of those other bands and Nitro basically made an offer to bring them on board. And even though they had no record ready at all, they would pay for the sick of it all European tour. So they were just going to give them 13 grand or however much, it might've even been more than that. Um, right off the bat to go on this European tour and then they would come back and do the record. So they kind of felt like that was what they had to do. And it was hard for me to kind of argue it, you know, like, I don't, I don't have the money to say, well, I'll pay for it. If this is your only option, I guess you guys got to do what you got to do, even though it kind of, it bums me out. Um, I don't want to absorb that. I mean, it, it would have been crushing for me if, if I would have had to absorb another $13,000 debt. Sure. And they were already in debt up to their eyeballs. Um, and really, as much of it was kind of a heartbreak that I wasn't going to do the next record because I had put so much into to pushing that band, you know, like that the next record would be the one that like, hopefully this one will pay off a little bit more because like the name's already established, you know, people will be anticipating it. Um, but, you know, that, that's, that's just, that's just the way, it, that, that's just the way it played out. It, no band is worth losing friendships over. So I had to kind of suck it up and understand that this is how they felt and this is what they want to do. Even if I didn't think it was the correct decision, you know, you guys go and do it. You know, the, the only caveat I had was please just, you know, help me pay off your band debt um, before you do the next record with Nitro. And that was the only thing I asked, which they never did. Ah, yeah, that's hard. Hard to have that noodles carrot dangled in front of you and, yeah, you know, and, and, and I kind of had a similar conversation, uh, with, uh, death by stereo. I don't know if that's something that you want to wait to get to, but there's kind of a conversation that ties into that scenario is that, uh, you know, I had done that first death by stereo record and when Ensign left kind of in the manner that they did, it felt like people around me were more bummed about, I was bummed about it, but they were more angry about it. And I remember Paul saying, like, we would never do something like that. And then record two, Epitaph wants to sign him, you know? And, and I want my friends to do it. That's a huge one, you know? Like, that wasn't the same as Nitro. I was never impressed with what Nitro was as a record label. Um, but Epitaph was, like, a big deal. And that was going to be a big deal for Death by Stereo. And those guys are my friends. Like, I want yeah. them to do that record. Like, that's awesome. Yeah. Um, but Paul kind of felt guilty a little bit because uh, he was like, we would never. That's so fucked up that Ensign did that. And uh, then literally the next record, they get offered Epitaph. 
you know, and both of those bands, like that was still the days of, you know, multi-record contracts. Both of those bands were in contract. I had to let them go, you know, like uh, I, I could have, I could have been a jerk and said, no, you have to do this, but why would I want to do a record by a band who wants to do it with someone else? That makes no sense. But uh, Death by Stereo made sure that, you know, Epitaph took care of me a little bit, not, not necessarily just financially, but like just in a real, a good relationship, you know, they, they let me do the vinyl versions of it. Um, they basically paid for, uh, uh, me to put out an EP for death by stereo beforehand, like epitaph. I, I don't know what other, like what, what bands relationships have been with that record label. I'm sure that there's a, you know, a spectrum, man. Epitaph was fantastic to me. Brett Gerwitz is a stand up dude as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that the second record was on Epitaph. I thought that was the third one. But uh, yeah, yeah, I did the okay. vinyl for this. The, the Epitaph did the second and third records. I did the vinyl for both of those, as yeah. well as the EP right before the second record. And then by the time the the last Epitaph record, so that would have been their fourth LP, kind of came around, uh, like vinyl was just really a difficult sell. So they just didn't do a vinyl version of it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to get to actually both those things. Although we don't have to get to Death, Death by Stereo anymore. Although we can say how big they were. It was it was pretty mind-blowing. Like, they came out and their sound was like nothing else. And and they blew up out the gate. Um, and they should have. That, that first record was, I'd say, genre-defining. If there was a genre that, like, sprung up after them. But nobody could really kind of do what they did. So there wasn't really, like, a scene that involved you know, that was copycats of them. But that first record is, is unlike anything else I put out. I feel like it was unlike anything that was coming out at the time. And I, I still think it sounds unlike anything that comes out now. It's, it was a, it was a pretty unique record. Yeah. Which was so cool that it caught on because it was, it was wild sounding. Um, you know, the combination of, of Jim being like one of the greatest guitarists on earth. Plus Ephraim singing like no one else, like can't touch it, you know? So yeah, but, that record that record is special. Yeah, I wish I liked it. I like I you would don't like it them. really. No, I I would see them and be like, God, this band is fucking awesome. Like they're one of those bands like you you watch and you know how awesome they are and and I respected it and I liked all the guys and it's just like I it doesn't it it doesn't resonate with me. Um, Hmm. I always thought I was. I always thought I would be the guy that like got into him on the third record, you know, and it just ne- <laughs> it never really happened. But I always, I always just knew I was like I'd see them and people are going nuts, and it's like this band is so great live. I wish I loved them, you know, like I want to be a part of this, and I just it never it never touched me like that. I don't know why. Hmm. Um. So let's go back a year before that. Um, okay. Because I want to talk about adamantium. I think this is a band kind of like forgotten history now Um, because they're a heavy band and they were fucking huge um, for Southern California. And so you do their LP um, from the depths of depression, 98. And, and then like they kind of tie in. It's that that whole thing. This is like when you're really like indecision gets going, you do the adamantium, you do the throwdown, you do the death by stereo. And like it's like all these bands can fucking headline showcase. Like mm-hmm. th- this, these are like hot times. So let's talk about Adamantium a little bit. And, and how do you feel about this band? How do you feel about this record? And and where do you think they fit into history now? Like looking back on it, 
Uh, as far as the record, I, I kind of feel s- in a similar way to it as, as I did about the Death by Stereo. I, I was never really much of like a, a, a metal guy. Like, you know, when I kind of found punk, I was, uh, I was into things that sounded punk. You know, uh, there's like the, the handful of guilty pleasures that you have out there. I mean, the first time you hear Slayer, it's undeniable and things like that. But for the most part, I wasn't really well aware of a lot of different metal influences that they were probably pulling from. So it, it was like fresh music to me. And, uh, and I don't think anyone really sounded like what they were playing, at least on that first record. Um, but more than anything, they were kind of like the, the, the spark that kind of started that little orange County fire, you know, the, the 18 visions and bleeding through and, and throw down and, you know, the stuff that, you know, ended up being popular for, for trust kill for the the next few years after them, they were kind of like the, the unsung heroes that kind of were the first of those. Right. And uh, yeah, they're, they're not, yeah, they're probably not remembered in as high of a context as, you know, I, I personally remember them, but the people who were at showcase in the late nineties and got to see adamantium, I mean, they can tell you, you know, it was, it was unlike, it was insane. Like the reactions they would get, it was like, unlike any other band I'd ever seen before, including bad brains didn't get a reaction that adamantium would get in a hometown show at showcase. It was, it was crazy. It was, it was a, it was a it was a perfect mix for them, perfect right. timing. And eighteen visions predates them, right? But they but throwdown and uh, and uh, and bleeding through I, come I after. I don't I don't I don't know if the name eighteen visions predates them. Um, like some of the eighteen visions guys had a band called Macabre before that, okay. um, and Adamantium was actually when they first started less of kind of like the metally stuff that they played in adamantium they were in a band called uh uh collapse and they actually i saw them play once and that was in 95 so that i think that predates probably uh 18 visions um but it was yes. a s- sort of the same band but i remember they played like a, a new year's eve uh house show in long beach with mouthpiece oh wow yeah, it's it's kind of weird when you think of like what what they were later, but yeah, uh, yeah, and, and Macabre, I think maybe it was only James that was in the shared members in that, but I, I feel like Macabre kind of turned into Eighteen Visions, but I, I I don't really know their history that well, but they were around the same time. Okay, yeah, so Eighteen Visions beat them by a year, at least in LPs. So that mm-hmm. the one that came out on Life Sentence, that I think that's a Salt Lake label, the Lifeless record. Mm-hmm. That comes out mm-hmm. uh, in '97. So okay, yeah. when does the Adamantium Seven Inch come out? Oh, <laughs> now we're relying <laughs> on my slow ass computer. It, 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 it took ten seconds to pull up eighteen visions. I'll, I'll pull it. Yeah, up. but they're but, they're they're probably they're probably right around the same time. I mean, you know, give or take, you know, yeah, six I mean, to I saw, eight, I, twelve I months. Eight, I saw eighteen visions at the time, and they were like a respectable local band. But like mm-hmm. Adam, I think that what you said is probably correct. Like Adamantium really lit, lit that spark that like blew up the scene. So all those bands would blow up. Yeah. So maybe that's the legacy. And I think that 
that's kind of rad because even if they aren't, I think that the the other three bands get talked about more and kind of are are more remembered. That like well, they no also shame. they also got to do they got to do more. You know, Adamantium, you know, they they kind of flamed out kind of early. You know, even though they had you know they did a second record, you know, a, a couple years later, it wasn't it wasn't quite the same lineup. It wasn't the same mixture of ingredients. You know, and and sometimes that's that hurts. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. The uh the Adamantium seven inches ninety seven on that's on Chase's label, right? Prime Directive. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well sick. And then in ninety nine you do the first throwdown record and again, so like the scene is ready for throwdown. They're pretty big out the gate. They do they do a seven inch before Beyond Repair, correct? They do. Um Beyond Repair was actually supposed to be the CD version of the seven inch. They they had they put out that they they recorded a seven inch and a demo at the same time. So like half the songs came out on a vinyl seven inch, the other half were like on a cassette demo. And uh, I had been talking with Dom, and Dom's like, "Man, I really wish it was on CD." And I would you be interested in doing it? And I was like, "Yeah, let's do it. I'll put it out on CD." And then fast forward like a week. <clears throat> maybe after talking to everybody in the band, they were like, let's just re-record all the songs uh, for the CD. So that's kind of how Beyond Repair came. It wasn't it wasn't like, hey, let's do an LP. It was like, let's re- just do a version of your 7-inch and demo onto CD. So it was it was almost the instantaneous, you know? It was like that stuff came out, they were already recording the, the Beyond Repair. Yeah, and they're huge out the gate, right? Um... I, probably not right out the gate, you know, uh, a lot of the early shows, you know, they were obviously, um, a very tongue in cheek band. Uh, some of that history is probably, uh, lost to time, you know, as far as what the popular version of them, uh, ended up being, but you know, they would, you know, they were called throwdown, you know, like everyone in the band was like five foot five and under, you know, is like they loved hate breed. They was just wanted to write breakdowns and and write silly lyrics. And you know, they'd have friends dress up like uh, ring card girls and 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 hold like song number one sign and walk in front of them while they played. You know what I mean? And just right. do silly stuff like that. And you know, I, I sometimes like those lighthearted, you don't have to take it serious bands will catch on with people when everything else is kind of taking themselves really seriously. And that's kind of right. what happened with Throwdown. But once once Beyond Repair came out, once that kind of that switch kind of clicked, you know, and, and maybe Beyond Repair uh, kind of changed the the image of them being like the jokey joke band that played first on some show to being like a headliner with an album. It's pro- that's probably the case. But when it turned over, it turned over big. Like they. They they were like the they were the fun band to go see at showcase. You knew it was going to be crazy. Yeah, Throwdown was huge, and uh, I, I hate to say it, Dave, but I love the third album the most, and that's the the one Haymaker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's obviously the the, the record when they. I mean, I, I you don't have to be blood is like truly their first album. You know, like like I said, Beyond Repair was kind of uh, it was almost like a. a, a a greatest hits compilation before a band should have a greatest hits compilation. You know what I mean? Sure. Uh, you know, it's just kind of like a, a mishmash of those songs, like just to get them done onto a CD. And, uh, 
You Don't Have to Be Led is like the first, that's the first Throwdown album. And, and, and it sounds a lot different, I think, than Beyond Repair. And then a lot of those songs that ended up on Haymaker, they had written, you know, with Keith singing. I think they even recorded a, a lot of those songs. There's versions like on comps and stuff like that. But when Dave switched, you know, Dave was became like kind of the the guiding force when he became the singer and he wanted to do a serious band and he did. You know, it, it changed um I don't know, changed the 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 concept of what that band originally was. You know, whether you, you like the the newer version or the older version doesn't really matter, but it was it felt like a different band, you know. Dave, Dave it was it wasn't writing jokes anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just a, a really good singer, and the production on the album is insane. And the drumming, supposedly, like you can maybe you know, but uh, I always heard that Jared, like he learned it in one practice and went and nailed it. Is that? Do you know if that's true? Probably. Or uh, I don't. I don't know if that's specifically true, but it 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 wouldn't shock me. You know, I mean, Jared's he's a he's a prodigy when it when it comes to drumming. I I, I do remember when he, you know, he he'd gone to the the Berkeley School of Music, and when he was living in Boston. Uh, he was kind of like the go-to studio drummer. So like he ended up playing on like an American Nightmare record and a Hope Conspiracy record. And uh, I think it was Hope Conspiracy he might have done first. And, you know, he, he, there was no talk about him being a permanent part of the band. Like he's basically helping them out on the recording because he loves to record. And, uh, you know, he he did his Jared Stereo kind of drum fills and what have you. And they thought they would, it would be easy to find a drummer that could just like play that stuff, you know, for the live show. And it wasn't. So I know when he recorded American Nightmare, I'm pretty sure Tim went to him and said, hey, we need this. Like, if you're not going to join the band, you need to play stuff that someone else is going to be able to play. <laughs> otherwise, it looks like otherwise it just looks like you're cheating it every time live. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, that's so wild. That's so but yeah, wild. Jared, Jared's I mean, it. it it's insane. I mean, that was like the other thing with Death by Stereo and that that first lineup, you know, like That's right. so he much of that unique it. stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Didn't he do a Vandals tour and get ripped off? Uh, I, th- I don't know if... He, I don't know about any of that sort of stuff, but he definitely played with the Vandals, which is crazy when you think of like a band of like what the Vandals are. Like they've had some of the best drummers in punk play in that band, you yeah. know? Yeah. Jo- Josh Freese... Jared Stereo, Brooks Wackerman, like they've had really good people play. Yeah, but I wonder how they would come on his radar, or how he would come on their radar. It's interesting. Um, um go ahead. Uh, I mean, yeah, uh, Joe Escalante from the Vandals was definitely familiar with Death by Stereo. He was actually mm. uh, our acting lawyer uh, for Indecision and Death by Stereo with uh, when they signed to Epitaph. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. That's so cool. Okay. Um, in the year 2000, you do something pretty unique that a fair amount of labels have done since then. But uh, you do the split series, a bunch of seven inches. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me if I missed any, but you do the No Reply, Life's Halt, which is fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry Live, Reach the Sky, Death by Stereo, Insin, Bane, Adamantium, Voorhees, Kill Your Idols. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, so where did the idea for this come from? And do you think do you think it was a good idea? Yeah, absolutely it was. It was so fun. Um that 
that happened still in the era when we had the indecision hotel. So we had, we had bands staying at the house, like literally every night you'd just come home and just like, Oh, this band is staying here, you know? And, um, through that, like there were so many people that we had, I had become friends with, you know, all these bands that were on other record labels, um, that all kind of wanted to like, man, it'd be fun if we could do something on indecision, you know? I'm like, yeah, that would be awesome. And that split series ended up kind of being the way for that to happen. Um, and we were able to kind of tie almost all of those splits into summer tours. So like the life's halt, no reply was for their, we made that and they had it ready for their summer tour that they did together. Um, buried alive and reach sky did it, did a tour together, uh, and had that record. Yeah, they played, uh, they played uh, Lizard Star and Oxnard. Yep. And then uh, Bane Adamantium, they, they toured that summer together. It was actually Bane Adamantium and Death by Stereo doing it. And then, uh, you know, the Death by Stereo Ensign, um, kind of like as a, as a request from Ensign, they want to do one more record on Indecision, and they love Death by Stereo and really want to do it. And Death wanted to have a record out as well for that tour. So we did that. The only one that kind of doesn't fit in that mold, uh, although it was supposed to, was the uh, the Kill Your Idols Voorhees, because that wasn't originally supposed to be Voorhees. What was it going to be? Uh, it was supposed to be Kill Your Idols and Indecision, oh. which I remember having a conversation with Justin Brennan, like we were excited, like, wow, like it's finally going to happen. Like Indecision's going to do a record on Indecision. And, uh, you know, I was, I was excited just for that. Uh, but something happened. I think that might have been right around the time they broke up, and it was you know before they uh, uh, started up Most Precious Blood. But Kill Your Idols still really wanted to do a split, and uh, they came to me and said, "Hey, what would you think about doing us and Voorhees?" And I mean, I I I was already familiar with Voorhees. I dug them, and I was like, "Man, that'd be kind of interesting." Yeah, you know, and they're really like the only like European band that ever really recorded for indecision you know yeah um so uh yeah that's kind of how that one happened but uh, yeah originally it was supposed to be uh kill your idols and indecision well both are cool that, that's a, that would have been a cool thing and then uh but the Voorhees kill your idols is cool and i, th- I think they yeah. did too they toured together no uh they might have not i didn't see it i i've actually never seen Voorhees play Okay, either that or Andy just used to always wear a Voorhees shirt. <laughs> I don't know. That's that's probably the case. Yeah. Um, also in the year 2000, you do one of the best albums on Indecision, which is the Count Me Out 110. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you come across these guys? Um, they had actually already done uh, an EP on Ambassador, I think. Uh, Ryan and, and Steve Hertz's label and uh, so i was already familiar with them and uh a couple of the guys were playing in time flies who were already on indecision and they had recorded that lp i don't know if ambassador was supposed to put out 110 or if they just recorded it with like kind of we don't know what we're going to do with it but it was recorded already and the guys in time flies were like hey you know like colin and 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 charlie got this other band count me out we really think you should put it out. You should hear it. I said, okay, yeah, send me it. And they sent it to me, and I was like, what? Like, <laughs> Yes, please. I couldn't believe they had been sitting it. Like, they kind of like, you know, like kind of like casually, like just like, oh, it's like, you know, another band that we're doing. And I heard, I was like, holy crap. Like, I, I fucking love this, you know? 
And uh, that's really how it happened. Like that record was already in the can uh, by the time I got brought in. And it was just kind of like a nonchalant conversation. Like, hey, what would you think about doing this? I was like, hell yes, I want to do this. Man, I, so- I love that band. They, 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 like we talked about it on that other podcast, but they're a band that like truly never got the love that I feel like they deserved. Yeah, I wonder if there'll be a resurgence of that. Like, you know, you just re-released the LPs, so there's no mm-hmm. time like the present. Everyone needs to go, and Daniel writes for both of them, so you should really listen to both of them. They're probably both awesome. Um, the second one didn't connect with me the way that the first one did, but it still sounded really good. I remember listening to it in the van. Um, That's interesting you say that. I feel I feel like more people have told me that the second record connected with them more than the first. Oh, it's just the production on the first one is like... It's one of the best sounding hardcore records of all time. You know, like you think there, so? Wow. There's something in the water in DC that day when they recorded mm-hmm. with them. Like, oh, the production is is untouchable. And like there's so many like little intricacies in that record. Like I always call it like the Blue Oyster Cult breakdown that they do it like it's one of the later tracks where it cuts out and it's like ding 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 I, ding I know. ding. And that's the part you're talking about. Yeah. It's like Oh my god, like that's so sick and it comes in on the toms like full youth crew style and like it's melodic without being like I don't know. I cuz I'm not a big fan of melodic hardcore with these guys and actually the next band that we talk about like they take it to the limit of where like I get it in the feels. I just I absolutely love it. I love this record. And uh yeah, so if people haven't heard Count Me Out, like you should listen to it. It's it sounds like I mean the recording is so fucking good. So yeah, it's like there's there's no datedness on it. Like it sounds like it could have come out yesterday, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I absolutely love it. But yeah, totally underrated band that people should uh, check out, as well as Faded Gray, Quiet Time of Desperation, my favorite Indecision release, and uh, sounds best on gray vinyl, uh, which I still have. <laughs> and uh, I, I absolutely love this record. I assume that you knew Lance for a long time before this yeah yeah i mean that's that's really how it happened um me and lance were already really good friends and i i don't really remember exactly how the conversation went but at some point we had like a conversation and he was like hey i got the band this band faded gray we want to do a record i really just want to do it with you if you don't want to do it i understand but you know the only person I want to do a record with is you. And yeah, of course I'm doing that, you know? Um, and it just so happened that the band ruled and they were awesome people. So it was like this perfect, this perfect combination of everything. Like I, I'm, I, I really love that record. And I, and I remember when we were talking about uh, what they were trying to do with the record before, before it was actually recorded, um, trying to like, oh, like, what do you guys, do do we want to try to go here? Do we want to try to go there? Like, what are we looking for on the record? And all Lance said is like, I just want to do a record that's crucial. I don't care about anything else about it. And that kind of stuck with me. And I, and I, and I think, I think he did it. I think it's a crucial record. I think all those songs are, are, they're greater than the, the record's greater than the sum of its parts. You know, it's, it's, it's a great record. Yeah. I love it so much. I'm, I'm, it's it's one of the records that like I don't know, I fall in love with a lot of records, obviously, but for some reason my favorite records are the ones where I like side B more than side A. Cause like 
people kind of try to front load their records sometimes. And a lot of times, like the, the first handful of songs are the best songs. But then when you can connect with the second side of the record, it just feels like so special, you know? And like this mm-hmm. record is one of those. Like, I just absolutely love it. And then talking about like, you know, you putting out your friends' records, like, there's no better feeling in the world when your friends' bands don't suck. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, it's like, oh my God, I'm buddies, I'm buddies with this guy and his band actually rules. Like, fuck yes. I, I, I used to reflect on that like all the time. Like, man, how lucky I am. Because it's, I, I'm not someone that's out there like, I'm not going to shows looking for bands. Who can I sign? That kind of stuff. I just happen to like do all my friends' bands. And I, and I, lucky enough that I have this talent pool around me that are just like gifted and do things that I love and do it right. And, you know, it's, it's, it's dumb luck. Believe me. It's, it's not, it's not me. I wasn't doing anything correct. You know, I just happened to be, I just happened to surround myself with awesome people, you know, on, on a, a a little side story on, on that faded gray. Um, when that record came out, uh, that was when revelation still had like a, not not a whole office full of like salespeople. There was probably like two or three people that handled like store accounts because there was enough stores that you couldn't have people that handle accounts. And uh, there was a guy that worked there. His name escapes me now, but he was all in on that like uh, death cab for cutie uh, like emo scene. And Fade Gray have that song "Emo Solution" on the record, and it made him so angry. He wouldn't sell any of them. <laughs> so I remember, I even remember like kind of having like a, like a conversation once with, uh, with Vic. I think she was working there already at that time. And she's like, Hey, this guy's not going to like submarine my record, is he? And she's like, no, no, he won't. But it's just like, it, it he was so bothered by it. You would have thought like, it's not like, it's like, it's not like they're, you know, bulldoze. You know what I mean? It's just like, right. They're like these are these are guys that would go to emo shows. You know what I mean? They're like, but it was like, this guy was so upset. So upset by the emo solution, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Because if you read the lyrics, like they're really well thought out. It's like, of course, the, this guy's <laughs> actually writing better lyrics than your emo bands, dude. Oh, f- for sure, for oh, sure. It's so funny, but yeah, uh, you talk about being surrounded by talent. I think everyone would be disappointed if I didn't bring it up. But in in oh one, you do in control another year, which uh, has mm-hmm. never been a, which we've never we've never been accused of oozing with talent. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we, we always paid you back. So we'll, I'll take that. Yeah. I don't owe you a dollar. I don't think. Do I? No, no, okay. I don't think so. Yeah. We always took that very seriously. We always gave you our money. So if, uh, if we're remembered for nothing else, I would like it to be that a band that honored is a band that honored its debts. So, and, and a band of real dudes, you know, I mean, here we are doing your podcast. It's not like this is the only time you and me ever have interactions with each other. You know, like this is a friendship now two decades in, you know, um, if, if there's any kind of like Mark that you could kind of give a band where like, was this signing a good idea? Was putting out this record a good idea? Like if I still talk to those guys, they're still my friends. Right. That's, that's, that's a good check Mark, you know? Yeah, I mean, I still and, consider and, Ryan and you were a good band. I know, I know, I know. It's it's the, whenever you talk about your own band, you kind of because I do the same thing with you know the record label. You kind of become self depreciating a little bit, but like in control, fucking brought it. You know, I mean, if 
besides just paying me back, you know, you guys never had a boring show. At least not one that I remember. No, we we killed it to uh, those eight people in El Paso every night. <laughs> I, I mean, I would hope they didn't walk away bummed. You know, like that. I mean, that was something we brought. But uh, but yeah, being that, being that's... being able to being able to still be excited to play when there's eight people there is a skill set that not anyone can have. You know, that's that's a true that's a litmus test for for how much you really want to be there. Well, it's not their fault that they don't have a scene. Or maybe it is, but like they went out, right? Like they showed up. Mm-hmm. So why why should yeah. they be pu- why should they be punished for not having a hundred friends? Like maybe they are like a legit like hardcore loner, you know that like yep. went out to the show because they're into it. Like I know what that's like, you know, like to be into stuff that other people aren't into or whatever. Like I don't know. I just what whatever. I mean, we're fortunate enough that Nard like. It has a heavy history. It's got lots of times of being like a poppin' scene. But then I also know the other side of it where, you know, for, for the hardcore scene there, like, you know, there was a time that we kind of built it from scratch um, mm-hmm. because we existed, like, adjacent to everything else. Like, it was its own, like, little carved-out thing. And, I mean, I take a little bit of credit for, like, kind of bringing it together, you know, too, with, like, merging it back up with like the missing 23rds and the Ventura scene. It's like everyone now it's like one big happy family, which is fucking great. It's what I always wanted. I never had a piece of like the drama, you know, I was just mm-hmm. like, I was just on a side cause I was on a side, but, uh, Hey, what are you going to do? But yeah. Um, that's interesting though, Dave, like, do you, cause you've been around for so long and you've seen so many people come and go. Like, how do you, like, can you do a smell test? Like when you met me or when I was like, I really want to be on indecision. Like, would did you know? Like, or were you like, who is this guy? Like, he's gonna be like, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. Like, how how do you how do you sniff people out to know if they're being legit? Yeah, I mean, I guess there is a little bit of a, like a, a sixth sense on that kind of stuff because um, there's definitely uh, bands that people you know ask me about after the fact, like, hey, how come you never did this band? You know, and it's like, well. The reality, I never did that band because we never had a conversation about it. But, you know, also like, man, I kind of got a feeling from that guy like this dude's not the real deal. Like this is a passing phase for him. He's going to be gone in a year, which, you know, people life happens and people disappear and people go on to other things, you know. But like uh, I remember the conversation that you and I had before, you know, we agreed to do the record, you know, and and. I mean, you were bleeding sincerity over it, you know, like, and you, and you, I mean, maybe to you, it felt like you were coming to me with like, here's a list of things that, you know, you don't have to worry about. We have a van, we have this, we'll pay you back. We do this. Like all that stuff was great, you know, but I I could sense that you just really wanted to do this, you know, And, and that's, that's the first step, you know, there's, there's bands that I talked to that were, ended up being very popular and probably would have been very good signings for indecision. And as far as, you know, name recognition and selling records and stuff like that, but they were just like, what, what, what can you do for us? What can you get us? How much can we get for this? How, what can we get for, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not, I was never interested in giving people deals, you know, like, it's just like, you want to do a record with me? I want to do a record with you. Let's figure out all the rest, you know? Um, and I got that feeling from you, right away. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a few bands I've, I've had conversations like that. I mean, I've probably been wrong here and there, but, uh, not in any, uh, 
uh, great capacity. I can name one. You, sh- you should assign oh, Modern yeah? Life. Yeah, you should assign Modern Life is War. I pitched them. I never had a con- I never had a conversation with those guys myself. Like I, I never actually. No, we went to lunch. Uh, met we to them. Lunch. We did. Yeah. When we went, we went to breakfast or lunch together. With yeah. Modern Life is War. Yeah, swear to God. Wow, I don't have any recollection of that. <laughs> How crazy have, is that? You must have been drowsy. You should have had two coffees, Dave. <laughs> oh man, I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Wow. But that's the only band I ever pitched to you, I think. Oh wow. But, yeah. But uh I should give credit. Thank you to Daniel for for like bringing us up at least. Like, but that was a weird ass conversation cuz I didn't know you that well outside of like a hi, you know? Yeah. And then like Daniel's like I think Dave might be interested. You should call him because I had all the money saved up and we were going to put out our own record, but mm-hmm. I had that chunk of money and it's like, if I can get someone else to do this record, I can buy a van, you know? And that was, that was the conversation. So as soon as you agreed to the record, we went out and bought a van and the van wow. lasted us our whole band. So it was great. And then we sold it to Spencer. Who's a, a Santa Cruz hardcore stalwart that did a, at that time he was doing, over the top was his band, but he promoted a bunch mm-hmm. of shows. He booked like our shows up there and shit. So it was still in hardcore when I sold it, which is cool. And then he told me what band he sold it to. And then, uh, <clears throat> yeah, I saw him that night that I, I saw you at program and he was giving me the whole lineage oh, okay. of where the in control van ended up at or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> pretty funny. Yeah. I had to sell it finally. Cause we'd broke up and it got towed twice. And I was like, I just can't have this thing anymore. I, I, I've lost, I've lost more than one van that way, you know, where like <clears throat> a band broke up or, you know, they weren't doing much and they just like left it on the street and it got towed and whoever's house it was in front of just like never told anybody else. And like, Hey, where's that van? Like, Oh, I got towed like three months ago. <laughs> what? Oh, <laughs> uh, it's brutal. Yeah. So yeah, on that's... the, on the Daniel talk, topic, let's talk about over my body. This is the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember how this project got brought to you? The f- they did a demo, and then you did the first seven-inch No Runners. Then you did both LPs. Mm-hmm. Do you remember how they came to you? I I honestly don't. Um, at least I don't remember any specifics. If I had to take a guess, it would, it would have to have been through Rob. You know, I mean, I had known Rob for such a long time, and you know, that man's family to me. So any band he would do. I would be game before I ever even heard it, you know? Um, sure. but I, yeah, I, I, I assume that he's the one that, that brought the idea to me originally and, yeah. you know, and these records are cool and, and, and they went out and they, they did it. They went and toured with bands and so forth. They got a little bit of the, the unbroken rub and got to get on good tours. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I mean, they don't, they don't have like a, you know, an extensive history of like, you know, they're not black flag, you know, but, they went out to the East Coast a couple times, you know, went to Europe, you know, did the, the West Coast. Like, they did – there was never, like – I mean, obviously, I want the would want the bands to tour as much as they possibly can, but I'm not expecting anyone to be on the on the road, you know, nine months out of the year, you know? Like, um, and that was, like, something for me, like, after – because Ensign was on tour almost year-round, and it – I wasn't, it wasn't beneficial to me financially, you know? So even in that sense, I was like, oh, I don't know if I want a band that's not popular enough to be touring year round, touring year round. Cause I can't really aff- 
afford to do it. I mean, when Ensign was on the label, I could only afford to do, I mean, afford is, is, is a comfortable way of saying it, but you know, they were the only band that like I could even come up with enough money for them to be even doing stuff. I mean, you see the explosion as soon as Ensign was off the label, it's like, I picked up like four bands, five bands right off the bat, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I was able to like kind of to spread those resources. And, And that was one of those things that, you know, is really something that, that you have to learn to, to survive the long run is being able to like manage your resources. Like there's there going to be times where like, you can't justify this or you can't justify that. And you have to have expectations on this, you know, but if you do manage those resources and you're honest with everybody, you know, I, I feel like it, it works out the best that it can. Yeah, it's just fucked up that, like, in a roundabout way, we can credit Noodles for the uh, late 90s OC hardcore explosion. That's kind of a bummer. <laughs> noodles? <laughs> yeah, because if you, if you wouldn't have taken, if you wouldn't have taken Ensign off your, off your, uh, true. Off your shoulders there, then you wouldn't have done the adamantium throwdown and the death by stereo, which blew up OC yeah. in the late 90s. That's so. true. It could have been a completely different, different path for the label. Who knows? So anyway, shout out Noodles, OC Hardcore MVP. Um, Weird, weirdly enough, uh, the neighborhood I live in here in Garden Grove, uh, the local high school is where Noodles and his, his brother went to school. Oh, and also wasn't wasn't the Offspring like Operation right next door to Rev? Uh, Nitro was like across the street they were on the they're on gothard as well but they were like across the street in, in another warehouse and then they actually moved to garden grove kind of near where the indecision hotel was okay because i actually used to go pick up records there cool um one thing you get to do i didn't put the date but it's kind of cool because you got to put out ito's band who's one of your best friends the welcome to your life EP. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. cool record and yeah, I mean that was him. Him you know, matter matter this, of cert. Go ahead. Is him, he, is him and the singer of Show of Hands, who I'm spacing on his name. Steve. Steve, shout out Steve. Uh, yeah, it was him and Steve, and then uh, the guitar player uh, VJ was already on Indecision because he actually plays on the Bleeding Through record that I did. Okay. So uh, weirdly enough, they have like a bleeding through connection. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, Ito lived at the indecision hotel. Um, he was unofficially probably the only employee the label ever had. Uh, I say unofficially cause it's not like he ever got a paycheck. It was more like, okay, you get dinner. I pay for dinner. I pay for a part of your rent this month. If you do this or, you know, little things like that, uh, right. piecemealing out, uh, little duties for him. Um, but yeah, if, if, for, like he put in a lot of effort into indecision. Um, how could I not? How could his band not be on indecision? You know, it, it would have been weird, you know. Yeah, that would have been a weird one if it came out anywhere else, right? Yeah, <laughs> be very strange. Yeah, and then we should say that uh, Dave got his Alan Goa's black belt. Have you gotten your black belt yet, Dave? Uh, yeah, I should be getting this year. I'll I'll get the. I have my second degree on my black belt. Oh shit! So yeah, it's been yeah, so it's been six years. Six years ago, I got a black belt. And who? Re- but weirdly enough, you know, like the 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 original Indecision uh, Hotel uh, roommates was 
uh, myself, Kevin Finn and Dave Ito. And as far as like consistently like going to jujitsu, like Kevin was like the first of us to like, okay, I'm going to actually go to the school and go every, you know, a few times a week. And then I was second in that line. And then Ito was the last one in line. And then the black belts have gone literally the other way. Like Ito was the first one to get a black belt, then me. And then Kevin is still a brown belt. And I think he's been a brown belt for like, I don't even know how long, probably like nine years, maybe 10, you know, like he's been a brown belt for a He's never actually gotten it. But yeah, we went in the complete opposite order that we sh- it should have happened. Ito's, Ito's, a, Ito's a line jumper. Who is uh, Finn under? What's that? Who is uh, Kevin Finn under? Uh, he got his brown belt under, I think, Sean Williams. Okay. He uh he kind of jumped around because he was training uh, at Hicks and Gracie's Academy in L.A. And then he moved to Chicago for a while and trained out there and then moved back out here and was uh, training with some of the guys <clears throat> that used to be at the Hickson Academy. Um, and yeah, I don't know. And now, now he's training with, I don't even know, Cobrinia maybe. I don't, he's kind of, he's kind of been all over the place. You know what? If it's not Sean Williams, he might've gotten his brown belt from, uh, Sean Patrick Flannery, uh, which is, you know, the guy from Boondock Saints. He played powder. Oh, how about that? And who's, 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 yeah. he, who's he a black belt under? Uh, if it's not Hickson, it was one of Hickson's black belts. Okay. Uh, Marcio, I think. Okay. I, I, I believe that's, or maybe he, maybe he got a, he might've been a brown belt when he opened up the Academy and Sean Williams might've given him a black belt. I can't remember, but that was his partner. in when they first started that gym, but that's still pretty cool. If you got your black belt from the dude from Boondock Saints. Yeah. Yeah, totally. That's a, that's a side note. We'll get to that stuff. Um, I wanted to quickly mention Stagold. I thought that those records, mm-hmm. those records were indecision standouts and it's a, it's a shame that they didn't do more. They're a band that broke up too early for sure, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there was, you know, I, I think some internal strife amongst them. Um, guys can be the best of friends until they go out on tour. And the time that you have to be kind of understanding for your friend is at its all-time high, and you just don't have the capacity for it. Um I, I think tour is what kind of might've killed that band to be honest. And, and I know that they did a summer tour that, you know, wasn't promoted great. I don't know who we had book it, but you know, it's, you've been on tours before where, you know, a bunch of shows fall through. It's discouraging. And, you know, if not, everybody is on board with being like, ah, whatever about it. Uh, it, it can get bad. You know, uh, I don't, specifically remember any kind of like blowout for those guys but i i uh, i i had the feeling that it was like uh pressures on tour kind of made maybe a member or two realize like i don't i don't know how much i want to do this full time you know yeah yeah i should i should start a consulting firm of of bands that want to survive bad tours because i got yeah. some, some advice you know so i'll get i'll give some away for free um they were no. never blessed with a great recording either. No, but nothing terrible. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like they could have. Yeah, you're right. 
I do want to say for, yeah. for the, 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 the LP, the LP in particular, like that was one, you know, like I, I remember even at the time, cause that record was coming out when they were already kind of like, we don't know how much longer we're going to last, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were not happy with the, the mix on it. I feel, I think maybe the record kind of got rushed, uh, not even necessarily by them, but, uh, um, just in the studio, it just, things weren't clicking, the, the mixing didn't go well. And then it was like, you get the final recording and you're sitting there listening, you're like, ugh, we got to fix this. It doesn't sound good. And then it's just like, uh, do we want to fix it? You know, like, and once you're kind of at that point where you're kind of, uh, I just want to get this done. It's, that's not good. You know, um, it's not a good way to ever feel believe me. If, 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 if we, if we, if we had the, the actual two inch unmat like unmixed reels, believe me, we would have, we would have done a, a new version of it by now, but I think those reels are, are, are gone. Yeah. And maybe the, maybe the seven inch sounds better than the LP, but they should have mm-hmm. re-recorded also off that first seven inch, that TGIF song. I think it was on their demo and mm-hmm. that first seven inch. It's like, that song is so fucking good. They should have like done face to face disconnected and put it on every record. <laughs> you know, um, I, that's actually a record. That's a record too that that uh, was already done by the time it came to me. Uh, I wasn't originally supposed to put it out. Everything. It was, uh, it was. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, just everything's good. It about was a that ri- record. Everything's good about the record. Like the artwork on it is is like. If they would have gone on to something bigger, like even the artwork could have been something kind of semi-iconic. Mm-hmm. But what are you going to do? So the record came to you who was going to do it originally? Um, they had actually sent me a demo, and I heard it, and I I loved it because I felt like, oh, this this is like a mix of a few bands that I really like, but like no one really kind of sounds like this. and uh, and And there's not that many bands that like – I picked up on demos, you know, most, most of the bands on the label were comprised of people that had already done records on the label or were kind of in our inner circle, you know, even like something like in control, you know, Daniel, uh, you know, talking to me about in control or something like that. That's that, that's how you get on, you know, it's not like, let's send a demo and see what he says, you know, like that stuff. I've always thought, man, that's, that's hard to like, just hear a demo and decide like, this is what I want to be a part of when you don't know these people and that sort of stuff. So, but stay gold is the kind of an exception to that rule. I had gotten that demo and I was like, wow, this is awesome. And, uh, I had reached out to some people up in, up in Washington that I knew and asked them if they knew any of these guys. And yeah, they said they're really great guys. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to reach out to them. So I had reached out to them and they're like, oh, well, we're already doing a seven inch, uh, coming out on, uh, uh, Maybe it was maybe it's maybe it's mankind or ammunition. I don't I don't remember the order of Igby's labels, but Igby was going to put out the record and uh, like the seven inch. And I, you know, I said, okay, well, let's talk about it. You know, maybe full length later. And they're like, okay. And then you know, I think it was probably like within a day or two, they got a, I got a call back from them, and they're like, hey, do you still want to do the seven inch? I was like, yeah. What's going on with everybody? They're like, he doesn't have the time or money to do it. So I went and talked to Igby. I said, Hey, or what's going on with the stay gold? He's like, Oh, you want to do it? And he basically just handed me over the record. I paid him back for it. Like whatever he had put into it. And that's how I ended up getting it. Kind of strange. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. The first one they did was on anchor out of Canada. And then you did the second one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I think those were like, came out the same time. They might've, they might've. And, and I, th- I think it might actually, they might actually be the same recording. 
Or that seven inch. I might, don't know. That seven inch might be the demo. Who knows? Um, um, there's the demo. They basically like they have those seven inches, and then like maybe they're like three songs a piece. And then to make them like a four song and a five song, they took songs off the demo okay. to put on both of the seven inch. Gotcha. Yeah, it's it's a it's a weird weird history for all those songs. Yeah. Um, o2 also seminal indecision band. You do the suicide file. And these mm-hmm. are these are some of the best indecision records for sure, because there's not a bad suicide file song. They just nope. fucking, they kill it. Um, and I and I think they're even I think they're a band that uh, you hear the record and you're like yeah it's good and then you see them live and you go back and you listen to that record and you really understand how good it is. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. They were killer live, um, and I, I love to listen to the record still. So this is just a, a great great band. This a uh, great part of the catalog. Um, I wanted to talk about in the early two thousands, like something that's gonna, it's kind of totally washed over in history because it went away and then it came back. But can we talk about like vinyl just died mm-hmm. com- completely? Do you, was that a slow fall off or did it happen overnight or or how would you describe what happened? Um, I don't know if I'd call it like a slow. F- fall off um and i don't even know that it necessarily died outright uh a lot of like the trend because i mean we did this obviously uh started having other labels do like vinyl licenses of your releases and there's a couple different reasons that we do this one um the label was busy i was putting out a lot of records um spending a lot of money on you know, advertising and all other kinds of things that you have to do and, you know, tour vans and this and that. Um, the money that you got to lay out beforehand for a release to put out on compact disc, vinyl, even some of those earlier ones I even did cassettes of, um, which I wish I would have had extra copies of like five years ago when people are buying old cassettes, which <laughs> destroyed me because I probably, probably threw half of those in the trash. Um, it, it was just expensive. So it's like when I have like three or four releases, all kind of all on deck at the same time to have to press all of them on multiple formats was pretty taxing financially, you know? Um, so having someone else take maybe the burden of the most expensive to produce format, um, because CDs were really the only reason that like the label was, uh, functional financially you know it was this kind of weird era where cd was king and it was something that you sold for slightly more than the vinyl version but it actually cost less than the vinyl version to make um but even on like a smaller quantity of records you can make enough at an independent label you know to 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 pay the bills which is incredible you know because you couldn't really do that with just straight vinyl um, but more so for me, it was uh, being able to not have to pay for, you know, if I have six records coming out, that's two formats a piece, that's 12 formats that I have to work on. I can get six of them done and then license out the other one. So I, me personally, I still get the satisfaction because I want the vinyl. I'm not keeping any of the CDs. Yeah. Um, I want the vinyl for myself. Um, and the way I looked at it too is like, most of the labels I did that with were, were were younger startup labels and maybe didn't have the ability to like, how do I sign a band? How do I do this? So, I mean, I walked them through almost everything. I think 
besides maybe the Promise record that Deathwish did the vinyl for, I think, and Deathwish wasn't Deathwish at that time, even when I did that, you know, um, but like, uh, like the Deathwish that is today, but, uh, most of those vinyl releases, I still did the layout for, I got the masters ready for them and said, here, you need to send this to here. You need to send this here and that there. And that's that I kind of helped them do it, you know, and for a lot of those labels that was still early on in their, their existence, you know, and, and I, I felt like it, it, it bred this like community feel, you know, I'm not in competition with anybody. I've never felt that way. I'm not competing for bands or anything like that. Like to be able to have like a partnership on a release is cool, you know, like to, to, to be able to do the overhead body record with Scott from takeover. It was cool. Cause I, I like Scott, you know, and, and to be able to do, you know, in control with, with, with martyr and, and even like when tigers fight, I did with closed casket early on in, in their existence. And, you know, that, I just think that was cool, you know, like, especially when someone like the, the labels that I was, had been coming up with that all signed, uh, you know, bigger, you know, Sony distribution deals, like there was competition. There wasn't between them, you know, like I didn't care. I was never in competition with them. You know, they, I just, I just want to do cool stuff with cool people. And, you know, I'm not signing, you know, Scott's band. He doesn't, you know, I don't think he had a band, you know, but I got to do a release with him. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's that's fun way, that's the way I looked at it. Yeah. The, it wasn't the, even, it wasn't even, it wasn't even so much that vinyl was dying and I, I didn't want to touch vinyl because I still wanted vinyl, you know, because even I, I want to say maybe right before that era, you know, I was still doing death by stereos, vinyl licenses, you know, from epitaph. Um, like I like doing the vinyl. Um, but it was also a way to kind of alleviate some of the, the financial hardship to keep the label going and, uh, and, and do something cool with other people and, you know, have a relationship there. Yeah. The best thing about you of you having martyr do the LP for the second in control record was, uh, I got a Madball test press out of it, so because oh. he ended up doing a Madball seven inch, and so oh. I was like, "I need one, please." <laughs> oh, I awesome! Just I figure don't. out figure figure out what figure out what the current uh, Discogs value of that is, and just uh, PayPal me half. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I, it doesn't matter the value because I'll never sell it. Like, when am I ever going to come okay. across another Madball seven inch or another Madball yeah, test press? But uh, yeah, what are you going to do? Um, I think another notable thing is this is more on the later side of the indecision, but one of the things you've done such a good job of is putting together discographies. So like, even we've talked about suicide file, you've done, you've kind of, well, you did that one comp thing of putting their stuff together, but like, for instance, you did the instead, you did unbroken, you did undertow mean mm-hmm. season, uh, you did the outspoken CD, uh, recently mm-hmm. hard stance, Mm-hmm. What what goes into doing a project like this? And is it is it partially like you just wanting to have like a nice like it's a nice one stop shop where someone can like really figure out the history of a band? Um Yeah. I mean a little bit of that. Um I just like doing cool projects, you know. Uh, uh it's not so much about putting out records and selling records, it's about doing cool projects and hopefully other people dig it as well. And, uh, you know, that's a lot of different discographies you mentioned. So, I mean, there's different stories amongst 
all of those probably very different from one to the other. Well, sure. Uh, but uh, a lot of it too was um, some of those were done in the CD era where a lot of those bands only had uh, vinyl releases or CD releases that were no longer in press. So it was kind of cool to kind of make something new out of it uh, rather than just like repress this record and repress this record. Sure. Um, but I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a completist. I mean, you know that about me. So like being able to like put together like these, these giant discographies, you know, with like 44 songs or 50 songs or however much it is was always so much fun. And I, I really tried to look at it, not in the sense of like, we're making, we're making this compilation of stuff as like a greatest hits, you know, discography project or not project, a uh, product, um, more so like, this is a yearbook for these guys, you know, um, this is, this is something that they spent their entire youth on. Like, let's make this cool. You know, like I, I want you to be able to look back through this booklet, you know, and and just be like, Oh, I remember this. I remember, you know what I mean? Look at all my friends in these photos. Like that's, that's how I looked at a lot of those discographies. Cause you know, outside of, uh, you know, a a select few and maybe some new people that uh, latch onto it, like the, the people that that, is going to mean the most to are the guys in that band, you know, um, they're not doing a record so they could go out on tour. Like we're doing this as kind of, uh, you know, something to encapsulate this, this magic moment in their life, you know, and, and despite what, you know, people might think about some guys who've gone on to have bigger and better things, man, they always love those first things they did. That, that holds a special place in your heart forever, even if it wasn't good, you know? Yeah, I think it's so rad because, you know, a lot of times when, you know, obviously the, the bands you've done, the discographies of, they're older now. <laughs> and when you're young, you know, only certain people collect stuff. And even if you do collect stuff, you move around so much that maybe you lose it. So it is rad, like, for them to get something a little later in their life that, like, encapsules everything. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I think it's super rad. I love it. Um, I think we should jump over MMA just because we've gone two hours already. And I'm scared that we'll talk okay. about it. We'll talk about it for two hours. Um, <laughs> but maybe we should do a bonus pot at some point because then all that stuff gets plucked out and people can decide not to listen to it because this is a hardcore podcast. Um, right. And, and we're total nerds about that stuff. Um Okay. Although I would like to know, like, what, what, what do you, so for the people that don't know, Dave did, does, and did like photography for MMA, um, for a long, long time and got to go to some of the most seminal events, like in the history of the sport. Although you weren't there at Ultimate, Ultimate 96, but, uh, no, no. To see, to see Don Fry's best night, even better than UFC 8. But, uh, what was like the, the best event you were at, like in feel of like anticipation delivered. Um, and let's talk about Japan first. So would okay. it have been the Fader Crow Cup? Yeah. Yeah. That was a pretty special event. Like uh, <clears throat> to be like, you know, in a, in an arena with that, that's holding like 50, 60,000 people, which um, is much bigger than a UFC was. I mean, that's bigger than a UFC is now, but back then even more so, you know, like those, those early Vegas UFCs, 
almost everybody that went to that like had some kind of like connection to like the sport, you know, like they trained or they were a trainer or they were a fighter or they did jujitsu, you know, it wasn't really like a lot of casual fans making up those crowds. Um, but pride, there was none of that. It was straight up fans, 50, 60,000 people in there dead silent. It was, it's just like this, this, um, this kind of culture shock that you've heard about, but you're not ready for until you get there. It was, it was it was pretty surreal to be there, and especially, you know, a lot of those uh, people that fought in Japan, I'd only ever gotten to see uh, fighting on TV, you know. So like, and I, and the one you're specifically talking about the 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 night that uh, Fedor and Krokop fought each other, uh, Kevin Finn actually went with me to Japan for that, and uh, I got him a press pass, and we were sitting in the press room. And we're just sitting there and like, you know, Sakuraba and, and Gomi are just coming in and walking in. And he's just like looking at what is happening? Like, I have no business being here. You know, yeah. we were like still like super fans about it at the time. It was it was it was it was pretty neat. Like uh, and I know people talk about pride now, you know, like it was, you know, some weird mystic thing. Like it's got this special place in like the cultural history of MMA. But I mean, it's it's that doesn't even do it enough. Like it, it was it was pretty spectacular. Yeah, and it, it would be hard to explain the buildup, like, to the Fader Crow Cup, too. Like, how big it felt. Like, because there's no, like, you know, you see people later in their careers and so forth, and, and you know, Crow Cup never really did good in UFC. So, mm-hmm. like, people just can't understand what that buildup was and for it to finally happen. You know, because it, it should have happened, oh, yeah. happened earlier, but they still were able to, like, make it happen. They met in their prime. And, like... Yeah, and it... And especially something that was, you know, like everyone looked to the UFC as like, these are the best guys in the world. And really the number one and number two at the time, heavyweights in the world were having like the two best heavyweights in the world fight in Japan. You know, it was not in the UFC and it was, it was pretty, and, and if I'm remembering that card correctly, it's not like those were like the only marquee guys on there. I mean, Vanderlei Silva fought on that one, Shogun, uh, Tank Abbott, I think, even fought. I think it was the last time Igor Vochanchin ever fought. Um, yeah, it's like, like it Tank, was Tank pretty, Abbott's it, fighting Yoshida on, like, the undercard. Yeah. Uh, Vanderlei Silva, Vanderlei Silva, Ricardo Arona was the first fight of the night. Like, you know, maybe that means nothing to, to, like, fans coming into the sport now. But, like, at the time, I was like, this is the, f- like... Ricardo Vanderlei Silva is making the second walk of the night, you know, like that's crazy. This is like their reigning champion. Yeah. It is. It, it's, it's just a part of time. It's so weird when I think about it, it it's depressing to me because it's like my favorite sport, like went away, you know, like I still, I still watch MMA, but like it's never been the same since then, you know? And, and Mm-mm. part, I mean, it's, and it's weird to think about the buildup to that fight, like just how gnarly it was. Cause Fader, like he, he wrote the blueprint that night on how to beat Krokop and Krokop was never really the same. Although he did have flashes of brilliance in like the, the open weight grand prix and so forth, which really is a culmination of his career. It's kind of like he was never great again after that night. Like maybe that was like his last hurrah and maybe he shouldn't even won Mm -hmm. that tournament, you know, but it was like he, there was something that left him after winning that tournament. I think maybe it's like the ultimate like emotional dump or something just because, that was the hump he could never get over. Like he was a guy that like never won a tournament, you know, even in yep. K one, he never won a tournament, you know? So, I mean, never won the big tournament, but, uh, yep. But yeah. So, and then, yeah, but yeah, but that, that, that was like Japan, 
Japan was something crazy, you know, like that was, that was otherworldly. And it was hard to not be a fan there. Well, also hard not to be a fan there because, uh, you know, the Japanese promotions, uh, didn't take a uh, gaijin like me, uh, seriously, like every single time, even though I was working for like, you know, like the biggest magazine in Japan, uh, at some of those shows, uh, they refused to give me, uh, uh, a ringside photo spot. They've even taken it, taken it away from me at a pride show before. Like yeah. once I checked in. Yeah, we, we should say But I mean, that. that's a, that's a that, Japanese, that's a Japanese cultural thing, you know? Totally. Uh, that's why you couldn't go to the massage parlors either. Yeah, I <laughs> was wasn't doing not. that. <laughs> <laughs> that's just, that's me and my dark Googling history. Um, there, there was a thing. I remember, uh, the, that trip that Kevin went with me, there was, uh, a place right near where we were staying that we'd walk by every day and it just said live kissing show. And every time we were like, what the hell is a, the live kissing show? And I remember we asked someone at like one of the, the press events, like someone that lived there locally. And like, I'm like, have you ever been to this live kissing? Like, what is it? And they're like, do not go in there. Do not go in there. <laughs> I was like, all right. Unless you're Yakuza, you do not go in that place. <laughs> yeah. All the, yeah. I don't know. You can never take advice like that. That's, that's always where I, I go. Like one time I was, I was with this girl and we were in a, like an Uber ride share or something. We were in San Francisco and this other couple mm-hmm. was in there and I can't remember what happened. We were telling some crazy story and uh, the guy turned around and he's like, oh, you think that's crazy? Like one night I was at this bar like in, I, can't, I think it was the Japantown area of, of uh, San Francisco. He was like, it was crazy. Like we went in and people were smoking inside and all it was was gangsters and prostitutes and this and that. And we're like, oh, cool, like, sounds sounds crazy, you know, whatever. He gets out of the Uber, and we're like, change of plans, can you take us there? And uh, <laughs> yeah, so we so we went, and it was just like a normal bar, you know, like, you could kind of smoke inside. It was like, you know, you walk down these stairs, and they'd let you smoke in that little area outside the bar, but it was, you know, it was down the stairs or whatever it was like. And the, the bartender was very flirty, awesome bartender. And yeah, there was a couple dudes that were like sleeping in there, like whatever. It was like not that big of a deal, but I always like, you know, if someone tells you to not go there, just go there and see the scenery. But um, but yeah, we we shouldn't go that far in MMA because I don't know how much people want to know. But maybe we should. Yep. Maybe people should reach out and let us know how much they want us to talk about it because, and maybe we'll do a Patreon pod of it. We can tell the story about how sure. uh, how you snuck camera into the UFC when Chernog was banned. Um, oh yeah. Uh, that was, that wasn't for sure dog, but yeah, it was, it was MMA definitely, no, no, that, that I actually snuck the camera in before the band era, but yeah, I could always tell that story. Yeah. We'll save it for the Patreon. So you don't, you don't lose another credential. Um, <laughs> now just for the, the completest in the, the listeners, we should say, we mentioned a pride card. Can you say what the best UFC was that you ever went to? The best UFC I ever went to. Um, I can't really remember like full cards or anything like that at this point. Um, but there's like moments that I remember. And, he, and they might not even be the most culturally significant or historical ones. But um, when BJ won the welterweight title, when he beat Matt Hughes, that was pretty special to see. You know, I mean, that was that was a big night for him. Um, but really the one I, I kind of always come back to 
was when Vanderlei and Chuck fought, even though it was kind of a year or two after it should have happened, uh, to be able to stand there in the arena and see uh, uh, Vanderlei do his walk and then stand in the ring waiting for Chuck to walk, and they turn the lights off for Chuck's walkout music, and Vanderlei's just in the dark, you know, standing there, I don't know, four feet in front of me, doing that little wrist shake thing, yeah. you know, with nobody looking at him. And I was just like, I cannot believe this is about to happen. It felt like it was one of those things that was never going to happen, and it did, you know? Yeah. Um, do you think that Vandalay and, and Chuck would have been different if it was in Japan? In Japan, for sure it would have. Um, I, still give, I, I, still, I still give Chuck a, a really good chance. I mean, Chuck was a, was, was a killer at that time, but Vanderlei on all of his vitamins at that era was, was frightening. Well, in, in the, the ring, like Vanderlei couldn't corner him. It was harder. Like he, he hadn't yeah. worked that much with the cage. Um, and not, not that mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I just felt he couldn't corner him and Krokop might've had the same, the same problems a little bit, but, uh, yeah, like he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't able to 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 walk someone down and get him in the corner and throw that high left kick and watch him slide down the turnbuckle. You know, when you have that as round, not that the UFC cage is round because it's definitely not, but there's definitely a lot more of a an area to slide out the side. You know, yeah, because Vandalay had his best success when he he was able to like have his back against the cage, and then he could actually like kind of control the distance a little more. That, that fight was disappointing. Yeah. That fight was disappointing. In my opinion, it, it it was, it was, I mean, like the fight itself wasn't great, but like, I just think of that moment, like Vanderlei in the dark doing that wrist warm up, you know what I mean? With nobody looking at him. I mean, it was a UFC crowd. I don't even know how familiar they were with Vanderlei, you know, but yeah, it was, that, that was pretty exciting. And, you know, I got to see a lot of people win their first belts, you know, I got to be there, you know, and when George St. Pierre won a title, you know, I got to be there when when you know bj won his first ufc title and when chuck liddell won his first title and you know those those are pretty cool things to be there for you know and i know that stuff still is happening now but you know similar to music you kind of get caught in an era that means the most to you and uh you know even though by today's standards maybe those some of those guys aren't you know the world's greatest fighters um you know, they, they kind of capture an era that really had my interest. Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel you on, like, the build-up to things, like, being the special moments, too, because, you know, I, I now, like... When you, when, you, when, when you have an event every week, you know, like, it's just kind of like, that one happened, let's do the next one. That one happened, let's do the next one. You yeah. know, like, that era of the UFC, they were doing five a year. You know, so it's like you had long gaps in between them and it's just like they had to load it up. If you got a spot on a UFC card, even like a, you know, with the dark prelims when they still had those where only the, the, the live audience would see like the first three fights, you and know, you like that was, <laughs> yeah, like that was, it was a big deal to get one of those spots. There wasn't many of them, you know? Yeah, I remember. I mean, I remember the anticipation, like, because MMA Weekly would, like, do the 10 fighters in 10 days or whatever. It was, like, two weeks of interviews, like, leading up to the UFC. Like, yeah, it was wild. Mm-hmm. But even, like, even what I was talking about was you you latching onto that Vandalay moment in the dark. Like, I feel the same way about finally getting to see Sakuraba live, even though it was, like, the Hoist Gracie rematch. You know, there was obviously yep. a disappointing fight. But getting to see Sakuraba entrance is, like, good God. Oh, yeah. You know, thank God I got to see it, you know. 
Um, but yeah, yeah. And for UFC moments, it's it's mine's not historically significant either. Although it was for the uh, the uncrowned lightweight title. But Eve Edwards, Josh Thompson, that kick. Oh yeah, and that that's right. First fight. At yeah, the you first sat there UFC with Edo. You sat there with Edo at that one. Yeah, and there was probably only like three thousand people in the arena, and just like yeah. seeing that as like your first live fight like that it was just like Jesus Christ, like this is gnarly, you know. But yeah, let's. Uh, if people want to hear more of that, hit me up, and we'll we'll go more because you know you said we weren't going to talk about it, and we still probably did twenty five minutes on it. So. Uh, <laughs> Like we can talk about it forever because we're nerds of the era, so or at least I'm a nerd. Yeah, you were a participator, so. Uh, no, I'm. I was a nerd, man. I I I love it. Yeah, I absolutely love it. Um, you are doing a handful of bands right now that I absolutely think are awesome. Um, well, I love the Bayonet Seven Inch, lots. Mm-hmm. I was so glad you did that one. That fucking rules. And then, uh, of course, Rada Correction. Shout out Greg from the pod. Um, totally rad project with him and Colin. And I should know everyone's name, but my apologies. Um, and then Skullcrack is probably the most active band. Is that correct? I feel like they're always touring uh, shows. I, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this a few months into a pandemic, so it doesn't feel like anybody's an active band right now. But... Um, yeah, I mean they they're down to play every moment that they're not working, you know. Yeah, I feel like I just see them on like every fucking flyer, so that's super rad. Um, Ursula, shout out Josiah, that was like a cool tie-in. I was like, oh shit, Josiah's on Indecision. That fucking rules. Uh, mm-hmm. hey, Josiah actually has a stay gold tattoo. Oh, how's that for a stitch back? Um, yeah, how's that? Yeah, and then you just did the Power Alone record, which is is awesome. Mm-hmm. So, like, do you feel you still feel the same? Like you're excited about music as you were? Oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I mean, you know, uh, not to dip back to the MMA, but when uh, I started getting my first <clears throat> paying gigs in MMA was right around the time that the CDs were starting to collapse. You know. Um, the label wasn't quite making uh, enough because, you know, pro- for probably, I don't know, let's say five, six years, the label was my only source of income. Um, and when I say only source of income, uh, it I wasn't getting a paycheck, but it was paying the rent on the house that we were all living in uh, and allowing me to do the label full time. Uh once record sales started dipping and you kind of, that landslide started kind of happening and it wasn't even, I was, I wasn't trying to get out. It wasn't like, Oh no, I'm not gonna be able to do this. It just by dumb luck, uh, MMA was starting to kind of come up and I was actually getting offered like, Hey, you know, we can pay you 300 bucks to do this or, you know, can you do this? We could fly you out for a week and things like that. They just kind of like intersected each other, one on the way up and one on the way down uh, so I started taking more uh, MMA gigs because I kind of ha- had to for the money, um, and it be- kind of well, not kind of it became my job, and indecision became a part-time hobby for me. Uh, but I never stopped doing it completely. But who would have guessed? You know, a, a year or two 
into my uh, MMA tenure that the sport would blow up in the way that it did where I was working every week, traveling every week. So I had maybe one or two weekends a year that I wasn't traveling right. or didn't have like a local thing to do. So it basically removed my ability to go to shows. So for like a good decade, I would go to like a one show here, you know, a Tuesday night show here or a Thursday night show here, you know, like sprinkled throughout the year. So it, it, you don't feel as connected when you can't, you're not really seeing what's happening, you know? And then in 2017, uh, SureDog, who I had like a, a full-time job with, let me go. And for the first time in a long time, I started having weekends free uh, to go to shows again. And it was, it was pretty exciting, you know, cause like everything was new to me again. Uh, I didn't know a lot of the people that were, I mean, this is a 10 year gap, you know, it's not like, Oh, well let's see. So-and-so still doing it. Like this is all new people and people that have been around for a decade that I just have missed, you know? Uh, and it, it was just so fun to kind of be able to just like enjoy it and love it again. And go to shows and take photos, which is what I always loved doing until it felt like a chore. Um, yeah. And I think that it's, it's also good timing with like uh, the program skate shop, like starting to do shows. Mm -hmm. Cause it's like, you get to see all these bands on like the realist level. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you're, I don't know. It's like you're, you're face to face with them. You can talk to them. You can see them. Like there's no, there's no them relying on like a nice sound system to sound good. It's this stripped down yeah. thing. It's like seeing someone in the PCH or the Shea, you know? And so, like, to come back into it on the realist, like, ground level is is so cool. Yeah. I mean, that's the only... That's that's the level I like. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I mean, if, if there's no community around it, then it's just, it's just fucking music, you know? Like, what, what, is, what does that mean? You know? Like, might as well just go see... I might as well just go see Oasis. Yeah, yeah. The, Gall the Gallagher's don't give a the Gallagher's don't give a fuck about me. True, true. Um, but yeah. Oh, you know what? I skipped over your most important band, O Six Retaliate. But uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. But yeah, I think that uh, the MMA the MMA stuff is crazy. It did take you out of it for a little while, and it's just because the travel schedule. Because I know, but it gave it, it was able to give me a a, a really fresh perspective to coming back into it you know um i don't know being able to like just appreciate having a conversation with somebody at a show that i don't know you know and and, and it's not like it's it's it doesn't take effort you know like it, it it does take effort you know like i'm not it it's hard to like go to a show where you're you know the oldest person by a pretty large margin and you don't know anybody and there's already like these circles in there to just like stand next to someone and be like, Hey man, I'm Dave, you know, like right. that's, it's good for me, you know? And it's, I don't know. That's, that's what I love about hardcore, man. It's, it's always been about the people, like the bands are important and records are important. And, but I don't know if the, if, if the people aren't worthy of you having a conversation with at a, at a skate shop, uh, what's the point? Yeah. No, I mean, the community aspect is huge and it's always a, it's always been a spot to meet solid, like-minded dudes. You know, I mean, like I've I've gotten a lot of lifetime friendships out of it. You know, so yep. so, but yeah, um, 
I'm so glad we got to do this. You're obviously one of the most important people in my journey of hardcore, um, enabling me to put out records. So, uh, I'm so glad to get you on here. I wanted to get you earlier, but, uh, uh, it's hard scheduling and so forth, you know? Of course. But, uh, yeah. Is there, is there anything? I'm I'm glad, I'm glad I finally got to make it. Yeah, me too. Um, do you feel like there's anything that we totally brushed over that we should have touched on other than the MMA stuff? Um, well, the MMA stuff, I wouldn't even (laughs) say we needed to brush up on any of it, but, uh, no, I, I, I feel like, I feel like we covered a lot of it, you know? Okay. You feel like you've been well represented? I do. I feel like I've been well represented. All right. Appreciate that. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much for your time, Dave. Of course. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you.